Hello, everyone. Before we get started with this new episode, I want to give a quick shout out to a couple of the new sponsors of the podcast, the first of which being the Archives of Falconry. If you're not familiar with the Archives of Falconry, they're located in Boise, Idaho, and they're the leading steward of global falconry heritage. The Archives collects and preserves falconry heritage and the legacy of individual falconers, including their correspondence, memorabilia, art, literature, crafts, and life stories. The Archives also interprets falconry history and celebrates the role of falconers in the birth of raptor conservation. If you would, please visit falconry.org and consider becoming a member. I'd also like to give a quick shout out to Masters of the Skies, and Masters of the Skies is dedicated to educating the public about native raptors and about falconry in particular. Located in eastern Pennsylvania and traveling all over the northeastern United States, Masters of the Skies offers hands-on interactive raptor experiences to anyone who's interested in birds of prey and falconry. Their educational program can be run in a variety of venues and in multiple languages and has been described as fun and engaging and consistently receives five-star reviews online. Masters of the Skies believes that every falconer is also a conservationist, and they're also inspired by falconer-led projects such as the North American Grouse Partnership and the Peregrine Fund. Masters of the Skies also promotes the conservation of our native birds of prey through the practice of falconry and strives to create connections with other institutions that share the same core principles and values because raptor conservation happens only when we all work together. Masters of the Skies also offers falconry-based bird abatement services all over Pennsylvania. For more information, just head to mastersoftheskies.org, and you can also find them on Facebook and Instagram. I'm very happy to have them on board as new sponsors, and if you're interested in collaborating or becoming a sponsor as well, just send an email to falconrychronicles at gmail.com. Thanks, and let's get on to the show. With Squawk and the chases can be short sometimes, but typically with a good bird and some good squirrel woods, you're going to get chases that can last up to a half hour to an hour. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the new Falconry Chronicles podcast. I appreciate everyone's patience, and for those of you who are coming over from Falconry Told and continuing to listen to the episodes that I produce. Thank you for coming over and for continuing to listen. And for all the new listeners that might be joining us, welcome. I hope you all will continue to enjoy all the new episodes that will be coming out here over the coming months. And hopefully by now, some of you will have had a chance to listen to some of the Houndsman XP podcasts that are available. And if you haven't yet, I highly recommend you give that a chance because those guys are good guys. I'm happy to be working with them now, and they're really involved in hunting conservation, so check it out. But as far as this first episode of the Falconry Chronicles podcast goes, I'm just going to give you all a heads up. It's going to be a lengthy one, so strap in. You might have to take some bathroom breaks on this one or something, but uh, I wanted to start off with a bang here, and the uh, voice that you heard in the intro there is the voice of who many consider to be probably one of the first, if not the first really serious squirrel hawkers in the country being Gary Brewer. And he was squirrel hawking before it was really considered to be a norm and sort of whenever it was 
still kind of considered sort of taboo. And you'll hear about all that and lots of different stories and experiences here in this conversation with Gary. But for those of you that know him or have met him in person, you know that the guy can talk and loves to tell stories. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And thanks again for joining us for this first episode of the Falconry Chronicles podcast with Gary Brewer. Here we go. Continue on with your with your initial thought of what we were just talking about with falconry being regulated and and just the you know the, the line of well, thought you're just talking about. We here. have a much better situation today. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the past, say forty years ago, I mean it was really regulated. Mm-hmm. I mean i i um, I took a Cooper's Hawk to California when I went out there to work a disaster. And uh, this was before 9-11, well before 9-11. This is back in the uh, 80s. Uh, a guy had dumped a Cooper's Hawk on me that I really didn't want, but I couldn't take it. I couldn't, I couldn't take it back. I had to go forward with it because he thought that I really wanted to fly an exhibitor and just didn't know it. You know, and uh, I've never, I've from the day one in falconry, I never wanted to fly anything, uh, exhibitor or fi- I really didn't know what I wanted to fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was not one of these guys that wanted to know a little bit about everything, but not a whole lot about anything. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be somebody that was good at something, mm-hmm. really good at something. I just didn't know what that was mm-hmm. at the time, but uh. But anyway, I, I found that back then it would have been easier to have flown out to California with a bazooka than it was to fly out there with a bird of prey. I mean, because I had to, I had to get, I had to get in contact with all the states I flew over, you know, and uh, they didn't give me permission to take the bird on the plane. They just gave me permission to transport it, and of course it was, it was. Uh, Banded, and uh, when I got to Dallas Love Field Airport, but that was the airport then, so that'd tell you how long ago it was. <laughs> um, but I got to the uh, to the station where you get you know X-rayed by your bags and whatnot, and there was a uh, policeman leaned up against the wall on one side, and I didn't know really how I was going to get past this. You know, because if is if something bad went wrong here, you know, I wouldn't make it to California and my job could be in jeopardy. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the lady told me to put the bag on the belt. And I said, well, you know, I had this this scam. I had all these letters from these different states on state letterhead, you know, saying the bearer of this permit is permitted to transport female Cooper's Hawk, band number, blah, blah, blah. You know, so a very official-looking document. And I'd made me a, I'd made me a, um, a notebook with sheet protectors, you know, really good-looking. And I was wearing a, a three-piece suit with a big felt cowboy hat and sunglasses, you know, the heap of trouble <laughs> type sunglasses. And uh, so this is where I've got to initiate my plan. And so I said, well, ma'am, I don't mind running the bag through the x-rays, but I've got a bird in this bag that I'd really rather not expose to x-rays. You got a bird in that bag? And the guy leaning against the wall kind of stood up. <laughs> he, now his ears are perked up. What's going on? 
So he comes walking over there, and he says, uh, you got a bird in that bag? I said, yes, sir. And uh, he said, what kind of bird is it? And I reached in the bag. I had her in a tube, mm-hmm. you know, with a lady's hose pulled over the tube. More or less it, an ABBA yeah, type kind of Kind of, yeah. yeah. Sort of. So, but she, her face was, you know, in one end of that thing. And you know how them Cooper Socks have a nobody's home look, you know, in their mm-hmm. eyes? And uh, I showed it to him, and I showed it to her, and he goes, Ain't that illegal? And I said, it sure is. <laughs> I said, if you don't have the right uh, permits, it, it's a felony. <laughs> and he says, and I, I presume you have the right paperwork. And I said, I sure do. And I opened up that. He was flipping through there. This guy didn't even know what falconry was, mm-hmm. let alone the any legalities that were involved in it. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, he he was overwhelmed with state seals, you know, and he says, have you ever done this before? And I looked him straight in the eyes and I took off my sunglasses and I said, I do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, well, he shrugged his shoulders and said, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> so I got, I got away with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I took this bird, it was in an athletic bag and I had a three man dome tent in there that was going to be my, my muse. You know, I had a PVC bow perch that I had built and then took it apart and then glue it together. I had three turkey necks that were frozen and wrapped in about six layers of aluminum foil that were that she that was packed around her, mm-hmm. you know, so that when I got to my destination, I could just boom, you know, I'm ready to go. So, but then, you know, about three months later, and I had a great time with her in California. I mean, if you're going to fly a Cooper's Hawk, you know, San Jose and, uh, you know, the, a lot of Santa Rosa, a lot of those places up there, they got quail, they got pheasant, you know, they got lots of things for a Cooper's Hawk that I really don't have around here, really. So about three months passed. And it came to the time now, I got to do this same going back, you know. So, you know, Dallas and Oakland are completely different planets, Mm -hmm. you know. So I get to the uh, security place, and the girl says, you know, put the bag on the belt. So they run it through x-ray. And I did the same thing. I said, well... I don't mind running the bag through x-rays, but I've got a bird in that bag. I'd really rather not expose to x-rays. And she goes, you got a bird in that bag? <laughs> I said, yeah. She says, I've got a parrot. She started talking about her parrot. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I just took the bird out and was holding it in my hand and set the bag down. It ran through, and I walked to the other end <laughs> and just let her run, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. telling me about her parrots. And then picked up the bag, stick the bird back in it, zip it up, and walked on into the <laughs> term. It wasn't no problem coming back. <laughs> but anyway, that was a very, very long time ago. Yeah. And uh, – I'm sure the statutes have run on the, <laughs> on all that. But anyway, you know, that, that, that story came to mind when we were talking about, uh, how strict the falconry regulations were back in the past. And, you know, I got my license just a couple of years before the big sting thing went down, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, so, you know, a lot of things changed. In falconry, people weren't as friendly. Uh, falconers that you didn't know were not nearly as open to inviting you into their 
group. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to uh, Denver, Colorado for uh, a, a school, a 30-day school for my job. And, uh, you know, while everybody else was wanting to go skiing and all that kind of stuff on the weekends when we weren't in school, you know, I wanted to get together with some of the local falconers. And uh, I had my NAFO directory with me, and I started calling people. Nobody talked to me. And then I saw Hal Webster's name in there. And I had met him before in Texas at the club one year when he came to speak. So I just worked up the courage, and I dialed his number. Webster here. You know, his <laughs> way he would answer. And I, I told him, I said, you probably don't remember me, but he did. You know, he's a super guy. Loved him. And uh, he says, uh, what, what's up, son? I said, well, you know, I'm in Denver. Oh, hell you are. I said, yes, sir. He said, I said, I really would like to get, get I'm an out-of-state guy. Nobody knows. Going to be in town for a month, and I want to get to know you. You know, a falconer. This is like a couple of years after the big sting went down. You know, so... And I said, he says, well, uh, you ought to call some of these guys. I said, well, I've tried. Nobody will talk to me. He said, where are you at, son? I told him where I was at, motel room, gave him phone number, room number. He said, sit tight. Don't go nowhere. I said, okay. Ten minutes later, my phone was ringing. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. You know, so I had, I had a lot of fun for, you know, four weekends in a row going out with the local Denver people. And, uh, you know, and that began a long relationship between me and Mr. Webster. We became very good friends. He was he was very supportive and instrumental in my first book being published. You know, uh, I, I, I took him squirrel hawking in Abilene one year. He wanted to go, just me and him. You know, of course, my son was with me. He was maybe 12 or 13 years old then. He's 43 now. <laughs> it's a long time ago. So uh, I took him to the only place I knew of in Abilene. You know, we're talking in the transition area between the plains and the desert, you know, not exactly uh, squirrel heaven. And uh, But I, I had found a place a few years before that, that did hold squirrels. It would, the chases weren't all that great, you know, because there's a hole at the bottom of every tree. Uh, and so you either catch it right away or it gets away, you know, kind of thing. So, but he wanted to see squirrel hogging and I hate it. I hate it when I'm in a place like that and somebody that's never seen squirrel hawking wants me to take them out. I've caught squirrels at every place I've ever been to a meet. And Amarillo, I caught squirrels. Abilene, I caught squirrels. Lubbock, I caught squirrels. I mean, uh, if you can find a, a source of water and hardwood trees, I mean, there, there's likely going to be squirrels there. They may not be the the monsters that we have here in the forest where I live, you know, and the chases are not going to be spectacular. I mean, to a small degree they might be, but they're not going to be the kind of what I call squirrel hawking, you know. I hate for people to see that glorified rat hunt and think that's what squirrel hawking is all about but it was hal webster he wanted to go you know so i took him 
and God was there that day. The stars all lined up, <laughs> and uh, we got a squirrel chase going. We were almost at the back of the property. Got a squirrel chase going, and it just, I mean, it was just amazing that it went as long as it did. It wound up going into a, a hole in one of these old, it was an old pecan orchard that had been abandoned. And there were only a few surviving pecan trees, and then there were some scrubby old oak trees and whatnot in there. So, you know, when you get a squirrel chase going in there, it's likely going to be the only one you're going to get, you know, so you got to maximize and I mean, God was with us that day because it, it wound up being a really good chase. It wound up going into a hole up in the tree. And so I kicked off my boots and shimmied up into the tree, got up into a fork up there, and I got me a limb. The bird had seen this drill before. So she flies over and she's kind of up over me, watching me curiously as I was poking a stick in this hole. I didn't think for a minute that that squirrel was going to come out of there. I didn't think it for a minute. But boom, you know, that, that squirrel, for some reason, I must have hit her funny bone or something, but she just exploded out of that hole and jumped on my shoulder and then sprung off onto a limb that stretched out towards another old dead stump, you know, that was about 20 foot tall. Hal was on the ground looking up, you know, his mouth hanging open. And uh, that dead stump was hollow. And so this squirrel obviously was going to try to leap into space and land on the ground near the only hole in that tree that was at the bottom. And if it would have done that, that would have been it. I mean, we, there was no way we would have got it out of that big old stump. But the bird was on her toes. And when the squirrel ran out there, just as soon as it sprung in the air, she smacked it in midair. And then, of course, you know, spun down to the ground. Hal had to step out of the way because if he had, they'd have landed right in his face. And then a hell of a fight broke out. So, you know, I got to get down there and help her. I got to secure this catch, you know, because the, the legend is standing there watching all this. So I just kind of swung down like Tarzan and dropped about. 10 or 12 feet to the ground, barefooted, you know. I dropped down right on top of this fricus that was going on on the ground, and I got control of the squirrel's head, and uh, I put her to put it down, and then everything kind of calmed, and I backed away and gave the bird a little time, and I, I looked up at Hal, who looked like he was 10 freaking feet tall, you know, <laughs> standing there, because I really admired the guy. I mean, he he was a he was a pioneer in my eyes of falconry in America, and uh, just a super nice guy. I mean, he was not aloof or, or you know, he's just a down to earth person. And uh, so, what'd you think about that, Hal? He goes, "Boy, would you would you believe in fifty years of falconry? I ain't never seen nothing like that." <laughs> and I said, "Well, what'd you think about it?" And I'll clean this up a little bit. <laughs> he says, that's the gall-darndest thing I ever saw. <laughs> so anyway, we got that under control. I transferred to Bird. He said, son, I, I've got another appointment this afternoon, and I kind of like to take a nap in the middle of the day. They'd be, uh, he'd go back to the room, take a couple shots of Wellers, and lay down and take him a nap, and then he was good for the afternoon. So I said, okay. He needed to get back to the motel. 
I said, but you know, this ain't over. He goes, what you mean, son? I said, we're going to catch a rabbit before we get back to the truck. <laughs> and he goes, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you? I said, well, you know, let's see. So just before we got to the truck, my, my son went down into a wash and flipped over a pallet and a cottontail you know, shot out of there, went up the ravine and out into a, just a gigantic, about a two-acre briar patch. And, uh, of course, the bird took off and was tracking the rabbit, you know, but didn't didn't go down low. She stayed up high. And then apparently the rabbit thought it was safe and it stopped. And she turned head down, flapped a couple times to get her a little speed, and then folded up, and then, bam, whee! <laughs> that was amazing. Then that sealed our friendship, you know, between Hal and I, and we stayed in touch. Well, after I... You know, a few years later, <clears throat> you know, I had kind of been uh, shunned, or at least I felt like I was shunned when, when I, when it dawned on me that that if I was going to be successful at falconry, I was going to have to hunt squirrels. You know, I got my general permit during my two years as an apprentice. I had avoided squirrels like the plague <laughs> because that was that was what I was instructed to do. In fact, the only time I'd ever seen falconry actually practiced was I went up to a mini-meet in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And of course, they hunted rabbits up there. They, they, they had them then. I think they've, you know, the, the rabbit population is not as high now as it used to be. But uh, some guys, Red Tail, got into a standoff in a, in a little group of trees with a squirrel, and everybody was freaking out. I mean, lures, you know, they were desperate to get this bird down. And that once they got the bird down, I mean, they they packed up and moved to a whole nother place. Well, that was the only reaction to squirrels that I had seen in falconry, you know. And so I avoided them for two years. I killed one rabbit in two years on my territory. I'd have to go to Dallas on a weekend. I'd kill two or three of them in an hour and a half. You know, so, you know, the, it, it just wasn't optimistic to think that if, if I was going to be successful in falconry, I was going to have to drive 100 miles, you know, to be successful. God gave me that first rabbit. It was with my very first red tail. The very first time I flew it free, I caught a rabbit. I thought, man, this is going to be a cakewalk, you know, but that was it. From there on, I always say rabbits, for me, are like Bigfoot. People say they've seen them, and I've seen the tracks, you know. But you get a bird, people call you up, and they go, hey, you ought to come out to my house. I got lots of rabbits. I found out that the translation of that is one night I was coming down the road to my driveway, and a rabbit ran across the road. <laughs> And that yeah. that equates to I got lots of rabbits. Heard a lot of that too. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I got to where I didn't pay any attention to that stuff. But of course, as soon as I got to be general, there was only about twelve people in the, the club, the THA, which is a great club, formed up in my uh, my second year as apprentice. So that would have been in nineteen eighty. 
they they formed up. My sponsor and another man were the driving forces, you know, to put this club together. And my my former sponsor, I always I still consider him to be my sponsor. I have a high degree of respect for him. He was a great uh, broad winger, and he's a he's been a long winger for a long time. He's he's one of the best. You, anything he does, you know. But anyway. Um, they came down here one weekend to show me how to find rabbits. Well, you know, I, I didn't have any children then. My wife worked in the daytime and I worked at night in a machinist shop. And so I had every day, you know, I'd wanted to be a falconer since I was 10 years old. You know, you think I wasn't out there looking, you know, but they came out here to show me how to find them. They're driving around Tyler. They stayed for the weekend and they didn't even find a turd, <laughs> you know. So at the end of that lesson, you know, they, they admitted, you know, I got a problem here. Yeah. You know, so, of course, as a falconer in Texas, which back in them days, uh, you know, we had Harris Hawks and nobody else had them. You know, we had that that market exclusively cornered. And when you went to a THA meet of any sort, a mini meet or whatever, you know, the 90% of the birds there were Harris's, you know, because we could all, we could just all throw them all up at one time, you know, and just start beating for rabbits. And so, you know, naturally, the red tail at that point in time was still essentially an experimental bird i mean they people had been flying them for a number of years but they people didn't really know that much about them you know uh in fact the book that made me realize that falconry was possible uh you know when i was a little kid you could go to the back of a outdoor magazines you know like my grandfather was a lifetime subscriber to fur fishing game you could go to the back of the magazines and you could order them through the mail. Hogs, eagles, owls. You could buy them and, and have them sent to your house, you know. But then, you know, I went in the Navy when I was 17 years old. A lot of things happened in that interim. You know, the peregrines and all the, all the you know, uh, endangered species laws and all that kind of stuff got passed. And so I felt like the the window for me to ever think about being a falconer had passed. But then, you know, when I was a little boy, I, I was I, I grew up in a very abusive uh, environment, and so reading was my escape. I loved to read. I could go anywhere I wanted to in the world and do anything I wanted to do by just reading a book and just getting totally engrossed in it. So my mother would drop me off at the public library on Saturdays because it was a free babysitter. You know, she'd give me a dollar. I could walk across the street from the library, and there was a little hamburger joint over there. And for less than a dollar, you could get a hamburger, fries, and a drink. And, you know, the kid's in there. He's got he's surrounded by books. He might even learn something, you know. <laughs> So uh, I never did like fiction. Fiction. I I wasn't a guy that liked to read Huckleberry Finn or you know that kind of stuff because I'd be reading it and I would be thinking none of this ever happened. You know, this is 
This is somebody's made-up daydream, and I'm wasting my time. I've got a good imagination of my own, you know. So I liked books about real things. I'd rather sit down with a with a manual of something and read that than I would sit down and read some, about something that never happened, you know. So I got interested in a lot of things, and falconry was one of those things. I stumbled across a book by Mitchell, excellent book. It's called The Art and Practice of Hawking by Mitchell. That was the first thing I ever read about falconry. It just made me burn. You know, I mean, I just gobbled it. And, uh, you know, there were other things that I was interested in, hang gliding, skydiving, scuba diving, ultralight airplanes, and falconry. Those are all things that I wanted to do in my life. And eventually, ultimately, after I got out of the military, I did all those things, you know, and found out that, you know, the last thing I did was falconry because, you know, I was working down near the Gulf Coast, went to a pawn shop one day and they had a whole scuba set in the pawn shop. I bought it all. Then I found out <clears throat> I don't like being cold and wet. <laughs> and then on top of that, you got like 25 or 30 minutes worth of air and you got to quit and go f somewhere and get the tank charged. You know, I mean, plus the, you know, the waters around Texas are just none of the ones that I've ever been in. You could see past the end of your arm, you know, it's all muddy and murky. Okay. Scratch that off the list. That's a rich man's thing. You got to be able to load up and go to the Bahamas, you know, to get any you know traction on that. Uh, hang gliding. I found a kid that was in trouble with the IRS. He needed four hundred bucks, so I said, I'll, "I'll I'll bail you out, but you're gonna have to teach me how to fly that thing." So I tried that, and really, I mean, that was really awesome. But uh, you know, had a wreck. Second time out, you know, it didn't hurt the kite, and it was just bruises and scrapes on me. You know, got the wind caught the right tip of my hang glider before I could actually get far enough away from the ground that the left wing wouldn't catch. And uh, so, you know, again, we have no place around here where you could do that. And I'm the kind of guy when I get into something, I'm I'm in both feet. And uh, all the way up to my ears, you know, I'm, in, I'm totally in it. Well, there's you got to drive four hours to get to the nearest place. That'd be up in uh, Buffalo Mountain in Oklahoma. You know, I'm not a weekend guy. You know, I'm an all-the-time guy. <laughs> so scratch that off the list. I was on vacation in uh, Tennessee, Chattanooga, Raccoon Mountain. There was a guy up there. Had a, he had an adventure park. He was a former commercial airline pilot from New Orleans, so he's Cajun. And he had a ultralight airplane up there, you know, two lawn chairs with a motor on it, cloth wings, you know. And for 25 bucks, he'd take you up, you know. Me and the wife had a big blowout over that because she can't stand in a chair and change a light bulb. So that night I told her, I said, look, you can't impose your fears on me. You know, that's not fair. That's not right. She goes, well, you just go ahead. And I said, okay, good. You know, 
So next day we went back over there and I gave the guy 25 bucks and he took me up. It was, it was a, it was an adventure. It was a thrill, no doubt. But that motor was so loud, you couldn't hear yourself scream. And then he, we got up there a couple thousand feet and he killed it. And we were just gliding his vultures sailing by, you know, it was really cool. <laughs> and then he went to try to restart it and he was having a little problem getting it started. Well, that kind of made me realize, you know, that these things, I mean, they don't have a real good glide ratio, you know, so you get any mechanical problems, it's going to be a controlled crash that you got a 50-50 shot of surviving, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, do I really want to do that? You know, so scratch that one off the list. And and then one day we were back and we were over. Oh, I had a, I sponsored a guy. An apprentice that was a, I have, I've had two deaf apprentices, you know, no talkie, you know, can't hear. But it just so happened that I spoke sign language at the time. <clears throat> and uh, the first guy, it was two brothers. They were both deaf, born deaf. And the first guy was also one of the nation's top skydivers. You know, anytime there's going to be a record attempt to hook up a number of people falling through the sky, he was going to be invited. He was just a, a phenomenon in the skydiving world. Well, his brother, that he had a third brother that could speak and hear. So he calls me up and says, you know, I got a brother that's really interested in falconry and is looking for a sponsor. And I said, well, why don't your brother call me? You know, if he's so interested, why are you calling? He goes, well, there's a little problem. He's deaf. I said, well, that ain't no problem. I speak sign language, you know. So uh, so anyway, I got together with him, and I kind of suspected from the very beginning that this guy's passion is kissing death on the mouth and living to tell about it. I mean, he's, a, he's an adrenaline junkie, you know. And I just wondered if, you know, falconry is a, is kind of a marvelous mixture of adrenaline and intellectual, you know, excitement. You know, it's a, it's a thinking, it's a thinking thing. You know, it's physical, sure. And, and it's a, a thing where little victories, you know, are huge. You know, and uh, you just just get so excited because, I mean, you know, we were really going against the pricks, you know, in falconry. Uh, it ain't easy because if, if it was, everybody be doing it, you know, and uh, it's something that you really have to be committed to and work hard at, you know, and spend a lot of time with to be successful at it. You know, you got to find where you fit. You got to, if you're a round peg, you got to find that round hole, you know, where you can fit in and you can be a successful falconer. And uh, so I made him promise me that if he was also into hang gliding, I made him promise me that if, that if falconry began to take a back seat to those other two passions, that he would just let the bird go, let his license run, you know, and he did. Ultimately, but one day he just showed up at my house unexpectedly and had his brother with him, the other deaf guy, Matthew. And uh, 
you know, I, I didn't know they were coming, so I had things going on. You know, I had a buddy of mine who's a he's one of them crazy people that likes the exhibitors. You know, he he's a you know he's one of them people that problem solving is what what draws him into falconry you know he likes solving problems and you got to be that kind of guy to fly those crazy things <laughs> so he had trapped an exhibitor and then went off on a honeymoon or something i can remember what it was but he he left that bird with me it was a sharpie and uh, he was going to be gone about a week and he wanted me to work with the bird while he was gone you know so he wouldn't lose time so I still had that bird to go out there and deal with. So I told him, I said, look, you know, I'm, I didn't know you were coming. I got a lot of things to do. You're going to have to follow me around. So we went out to my building where I had the, the Sharpie, and I lit a candle. You know, so it was a very dim light. And them two guys, the the brother was knelt down in front, and the the guy that it was actually my apprentice was standing over him. And uh, they were both watching me and, you know, how how slow, you know, you got to have a good attention span, you know, because I was trying to get this Sharpie to take some food off the glove. And so at some point I wiggled my thumb that was under his feet and he kind of looked down because of the movement and he started kind of going down. Then he popped back up, you know, and I, I rolled my eyes over there to the two guys and the guy that was my apprentice was looking at his watch. <laughs> and the guy that was his brother was was intensely interested, and he rolled his eyes to mine, and he nodded his head like, yeah. I, I looked at them like, did you catch that? Mm-hmm. You know? And the brother is the one that noticed it, you know? Well, after a while, they left, and I told my wife, I said, Matthew's the falconer. Not David. It's Matthew. And, of course, he wound up. You know, I sponsored him. You know how difficult it is for a deaf person to keep up with a bird in the woods? I mean, that's a challenge. Sure. You know, one day I pulled into one of my spots. I was flying a Harris's at that time. And I got to – I noticed that when I got out of the truck and went back there and dropped the tailgate, that usually she would be fidgeting around in there, and I could hear her bell, but it was quiet. And I opened up the door, and the bell was laying in the bottom of the box. I started to call it off, and then I thought, well, Matthew does this all the time, <laughs> you know? So I got her out, and I put her up, and I literally, for two hours, I hunted walking backwards, you know, because I couldn't. I was just very uncomfortable. It's quite a challenge. But Matthew told me that when a hawk moves through the forest, it has like a wake. It creates a wake. Things respond to it. And he, not being able to hear, and you know, he picks up on that. So he, I mean, that guy in all the years he was in Falconry, he's no, no longer in now. He's in Philippines. But uh, in all the years that he did practice Falconry, he left one bird out overnight. And then got it back the next day. That's it. I mean, I, 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 I was a nervous wreck <laughs> at the end of that, that one day. So but anyway, so, you know, uh, David, he worked at the local small airport, you know, just 
kind of keep his habit fed. He uh, there was a skydiving school out there where, you know, for a hundred and twenty bucks, you know, you could get yourself clipped to some master skydiver, go up two miles and jump out of an airplane. So, you know, that was one of the only things left on the list, you know. So I went out there and I did it. And, you know, it was pretty exciting, but it wasn't the, the, it wasn't the terrifying thing that I had hoped it would be. You know, I mean, we climbed out of the airplane onto the wing of the plane, which was the most exciting part of the whole deal, you know, was flying, hanging on to the wing of an airplane, you know, two miles up. That was pretty, that was pretty exciting. But then we went one, two, three, and we pushed off and we were falling. Of course, you're just absolutely insanely thrashing at the air of, at first, but then the ground school kicked in, go into the spread eagle. And you know how when you're dreaming, you know, you get that tickle feeling in your stomach when you're falling yeah. in a dream? Mm-hmm. That wasn't there. It didn't happen. And that's what I was after, you know, that tickle feeling, to be able to produce that anytime I wanted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the ground didn't look like it was getting any closer because you're so high up, you know. It just was kind of a letdown. And then, you know, 40 seconds of free fall and then the chute opens and it's like being in a car wreck. You go from 100 miles an hour to zero, like, Instantly, you know, pops every bone in your body. And then you glide down and you land. I'm not poo-pooing it. But when you stop and think about this, you got to have three to $5,000 worth of jump equipment. You're not allowed legally to even pack your own chute. You know, you got to pay somebody to pack your parachute. Then you got to hire a pilot and a plane. Obviously. This is a rich man's sport. You know, I'm not a rich man. Well, a few months later, I scratched that off the list. The only thing left on the list was falconry. And, you know, uh, I, I just assumed it was illegal, which it is really. But, I mean, uh, with special permits, you can still do it. So I go into a bookstore, which happens to be my favorite kind of store since Books were so important to me as a kid. So on the new arrivals rack, just as I walked into this B. Dalton bookseller store, there was a book called Falconry Today by Jack Sampson. Crappy book. Don't waste your money. But uh, because he, he made a statement in there that really, it didn't turn me off then, but it really turned me off years down the road but falconry today today so i snatched it up to see when the copyright was and it was that same year so i thought i you know i was amazed you know maybe you can do this but the the appendix in the back where it told you how to contact the state game department and get the packet so you could figure out how to get legally practice falconry was worth the price of the book. The thing that later really pissed me off about that book uh, was that when he's talking about red tails, you know, he described them as basically a fat, slow, lazy bird, not really suitable for falconry, but one that an apprentice could fly. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, at the time I read it the first time, I didn't know that that was a huge, ignorant lie. <laughs> you know, so, but anyway, so I snatched up that book and sent to the state. Now, bear in mind that in this particular time, there were no computers and no cell phones. To call the next city over from you was long distance. Yeah. Very expensive. So, and, you know, they didn't have fax machines and all this technology that we have these days. You know, so it it took a while for me to get my packet. There was about 24 licensed falconers mentioned with their addresses and phone numbers. And I started calling around. And uh, half of them were either not practicing or weren't practicing at that time, you know, and didn't want to, you know, couldn't sponsor me. And then another visitation of God is when I called Don Raber, you know, uh, who wound up being my sponsor. Uh, you know, when somebody's looking to to get into falconry and they get this list of falconers and they know they got to have somebody sign the papers, you know, you, you just typically assume that if they've got a general or a master permit, they must know what they're doing. You know, I mean, they got to be good, any of them, because, you know, you got to be a general or a master to sponsor somebody. Right. But the person that's looking for a sponsor, he's just looking for a sponsor. He figures that 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 the whole pool of people are all capable, you know, so they don't know. But, you know, back in the early days of falconry, most people who were active falconers were real serious you know i mean we the people that i came to know they were all serious people you know about falconry everybody's very passionate no hobbyists but then as falconry grew you had some people that would get their general permit and they couldn't wait to sponsor somebody because that was maybe the only way they could be elevated you know because maybe they weren't that great, you know, but if you got somebody that's answering to you, you can feel like you're somebody. And a lot of people got in that maybe shouldn't have, you know, and those people, because in, in the earliest days in this state, you know, when somebody approached you about falconry, you vetted them, you checked them out, you, you, you drilled them. You wanted to know everything about their life, you know, because falconry was so important to us that we didn't want to be the the guy that brought in a deadbeat, you know. So, so it was it was taken very seriously. You you had to go to meet the guy that that was a prospective sponsor, and he's going to give you the third degree. He wants to know what do you do for a living? How long have you done it? Are you married? How long have you been married? How many kids you got? How old are your kids? You know, because uh, you know you got to find out if they got the time. You know, that's the first question a lot of people who think they're interested in falconry. They go, "Well, how much time does it take?" That's a red flag, and I, my answer to that is not time you have to spend as much as it's time you want to spend. You know. So uh, that's always a red flag. It doesn't mean that they're not 
a good prospect, but it's it's kind of it perks my ears up. I want to know more about this person, you know, because I don't want to I don't want to bring somebody into falconry that's going to malign it. So, at what point were did you actually get to start practicing falconry yourself? And and I'm just trying to figure out the time because okay. you said because you said like yeah, they, they I took jumped. you, I you jumped. took you sky yeah. you know you said they they took you skydiving and stuff or whatever. But it's so mm-hmm. like we kind of jumped there for a minute. It made it kind of sound like you're already practicing at one point. Whenever you were, you yeah. Know, well, this. I was practicing at the time mm-hmm. I jumped out of an airplane with David. I got gotcha. you. Okay, uh, because that's how I met him. You know, but but he had he got into falconry mm-hmm. and the first year he did real good, but the second year he struggled mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. all his skydiving and hang gliding yeah. ex- escapades began to put him in a strain. Gotcha. You know, to fly the bird like he's supposed to fly the bird. Yeah. And he did exactly what he promised me he would do. Mm. He let the bird go and let his license right. lapse. But you had already you had already done a lot of those other things though, and ruled right. those things out by the time you, right. you did so that. Right. So let's back gotcha. up. I got you. To okay. the bookstore. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So I, I bought the book and I took it home. I was so excited, you know, to find out that you know that, that you can do this legally, but you just got to jump through a lot of hoops, you know. At that particular time, I was also, you know, I got out of the military in 1974 i came home sowed all my wild oats you know and uh, about 75 or 76 i met the woman of my dreams and i gave up everything to marry her you know and uh, so a couple of years later we owned a mobile home in seven acres out in the country and that's when i discovered you know that falconry was something that i could still do mm-hmm. couldn't order them out of the back of a magazine but you know but there was a pathway to practice this this that was the that was the thing that i had so wanted to do since i was a little kid of course you know we i can't even get you to water the dogs and you want another animal <laughs> you know yeah. that kind of thing you mm-hmm. know and then I jumped from the pan from the pan into the fire when at seventeen years old I joined the Navy and I was all over the world and back uh for that duration of time. And then I got out and you know, of course you you come out from the you know, Vietnam was going on at the time and so being in the military was pretty exciting. You know, and whether I mean that in a good way or a bad way uh, is beside the point. But mm-hmm. you live a life like that, and then you come back into the civilian world where, you know, you don't have a guaranteed three hots in a cot. You know, you got to get out and do some dead-end, deadbeat job so that you can buy a crappy place to live. And, you know, I mean, it's different. So I had a little adjustment problem there mm-hmm. for about a year. But during now, I met this girl. And she had had this thing since she was a little girl about owls. You know, when her birthday or Christmas came around, you didn't have to think about what you you'd find something that was owl related. You know, I mean, when you went into her house, her apartment to go to the bathroom, you you flipped up the owl's beak to get the lights on. And then you lifted up the pot cover, you know, that was an embroidered owl on the toilet. You know, everything was owl, you know. In in fact, it got to the point where she told everybody, okay, that's enough. No more owls. But see, I was trying to impress her. 
So I went to the local trade day, supposed to be the largest flea market in the, on the planet. And there was a guy there that, you know, he had a owl that he had caught on a pole trap that had a broken leg, you know, that was coming in and killing his chickens. And he said he'd sell it to me for 20 bucks. You know, well, this was very questionable. But, you know, I went up there to get the owl, and I bought this owl to impress her. Here's a live one, you know. <laughs> so I was out having to hunt for this bird every day and uh, to bring it natural food, you know, because I wasn't making enough money to buy food. I'd have to go out with a pellet rifle every day and kill something for this dead gum owl to eat. Well, eventually, you know, I, I wrapped the leg, set the leg, and I wrapped it. Eventually, the bird was using it, you know, so basically I rehabbed it, and uh, we carried it down into the river bottom and released it one day, you know, when she wasn't having the owl in her house, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, so I finally got that. I finally got that permit, you know. To I can be a falconer. I, you know, of course, you know, having a permit is not make you a falconer, you know. And having a bird fly across to you and land on your glove is not being a falconer, you know. You got to be taking game with some kind of consistently. You know, consistency in order to call yourself a falconer. It's got to be a consistent thing, you know. So, you know, you, you still, you get into falconer, you still got mountains to climb, you know. Having this permit, now you got to get a bird, which ain't so easy, really, uh, in this area. We don't live, this ain't a flyway, you know. So they come through here usually around Thanksgiving. Around in that November is when the birds start filtering down through here. And otherwise, it's a needle in a haystack to find the right species, the right sex, and the right age is a huge order around here. I mean, it's doable, of course, but but it's not it's not easy. <laughs> then you get a bird, and uh, back then, like I said, phone calls from Tyler to Dallas were very expensive. You know, and my sponsor lived in Dallas. And so every time he picked up the phone, the meter started running. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, and I called him every day, usually around supper time. That's why his wife probably still hates me to this day. <laughs> uh, because I'd call up there every day around dinner time and talk to him for an hour. You know, so we got to the point where I'd had this bird six weeks. I was terrified to drop that creons to see everything just fly away, you know. And he finally, he used a little tough love. He said, Gary, he said, it's time to fly that bird free. Don't call me back until you've done it. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. So, you know, he said, take your creons birds, go out to where you're going to fly the bird, set it all up, call it to, to on the creons a couple of times. And if, it, if, if it's very responsive, drop the creons. I said, okay. So I did that, and uh, you know, got out. Bird came to me instantly. You know, a couple of times. I thought, okay, well, it's looking good. So I unclipped her, got her on the glove, and I started walking around. And the bird left my fist, went up into a tree, and then flew over about 
50 yards or so and just went disappeared into a little oasis of bushes and trees. When I caught up with her, she was on a dead, rotting deer carcass. <laughs> so I ripped her off of that and walked what I thought was a good distance away and put her back up. She went straight back to the deer carcass. <laughs> so when got her again, this time I, I, I hooded her up and I walked a long ways. Put her back up. Okay, we're back on track. Now, every time that I threw her off and called her and she came back, I thought, okay, I did what he said. Now I can call him, you know. Let's call it a day. Let's quit while you're ahead, you know. But then I thought, well, she did come. She came quickly. So I'm going to push this a little farther. So at some point, out out from us about 100 yards, there was this little scraggly trees out there all by itself. And I thought, I'm going to start walking towards that tree and see how far that I can get from her before she tries to catch up with me, you know, she, until she moves up. So the the topography of the land right there was like a giant cultivator, you know, hills and valleys, hills and valleys. Literally, it looked like, you know, the green giant had, you know, tilled that place up. So I'm on top of one of the high parts, and I'm walking, and it's about knee-deep in, you know, briars, you know, dewberries and blackberry stuff. And uh, this rabbit, I almost stepped on it. I may have stepped on it. I don't know. All I know is it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> I mean, it just exploded right in my feet. And it ran down into the low part, and then it turned back. The bird was sitting behind me about 50 yards in a in a mimosa tree on a low limb. And those mimosa trees, they're not big trees, you know. And the rabbit was running straight at her because it came back up on the high part. And she saw it, and then big old wings come whoosh, you know, and like a diving board, she sprung off of that mimosa tree. And then the rabbit realized, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> and it did a 180. Now it's running straight at me, and she's flying. And uh, just before it got to me, and the bird was closing the gap. You know, she was catching up with the rabbit. So the rabbit went around me down into the low part, and then, of course, they both went right past me. I mean, I was right there. And then the rabbit took a right and was going to go up over the high part that I was standing on out in front of me about 20 feet. And the red tail, she just, she just turned up and, and shot up in the sky and winged over and bam, nailed his ass. <laughs> and, uh, and so now I, you know, I, I don't know really what to do. I mean, I, I, you know, because, you know, you don't, everything I'd read in the old writings was, you know, like getting on, making in, you know, was like, could be getting down on your belly and scooting in on her, you know, because you don't want to spook her. And, you know, none of that's, none of that's necessary. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. And, uh, but I did, I got on my belly in the briars. <laughs> You know, and I scooted up to her, and I'm looking at those Jesses, thinking I got to get one of those anyway. I got to get one of those, and I got to get her tethered, you know, so that she doesn't pick this thing up and fly away. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, man, once, once, I, once I realized that you know we got away with this, you know, we we pulled it off. I thought, man, this is gonna be a cakewalk, <laughs> and uh, 
because I thought, you know, my first time to fly my first bird free, we kill a rabbit, man. This is, we're going to set the world on fire. So at any rate, uh, what a, that's probably one of the most exhilarating feelings that I've, I still feel it when I think back on that day mm-hmm. and that we killed our first head of game. Right. I, you know, uh, you know, I was hooked. I was hooked before, but now for sure, you know, I'm totally insane. So as far as then your continued progression with things, I mean, how long was it after that then that you, you said you, you realized that you're going to have to start hunting squirrels and, and then like, and so like, what was the progression like, you know, while you were trying to figure out, you know, how to go about doing that when you were going to need to do that. And then from there, what was the inspiration for you to write a book about it, basically? Okay. Well, you know, I did my apprenticeship. Very limit, limited experience on my own home turf. You know, very limited uh, success. So, of course, I got my general license, and I'm loading the truck. I'm going down to the deserts of South Texas and get me not only one airsock, but I'm going to bring back two of them. You know, so I brought back two females, Toe and Geronimo. And uh, because there were some things that happened down there that I I don't have time to tell you about. It was pretty, pretty weird. But uh, anyway, so I bring these birds back. I'm going to I'm planning on flying them in a cache, which I ultimately did. But I'm going to train them and enter them individually. Okay, so, and uh, so there was a rose field, you know, Tyler, Texas is supposedly the rose capital of the world. And I had seen these old black men working out in this rose field one time, and I come in there and I asked them, you ever see any rabbits in here? Oh, yes, sir. I said, well, uh, would you mind if, you know, I told them what I was doing, and, and of course they thought the bird, they thought the bird was cool, but it was, they were reacted to it like it was a snake. You know, but they they told me I could come in there and hunt anytime I wanted. Well, everything in East Texas is surrounded by woods. I mean, you have to carve out when you fly over East Texas. You know, it's, it's obvious that you have to carve out a spot to build a house and then you have to continuously fight the forest back because it wants to retake the land. You know, this is the south. This is the this is the back porch of the southeastern woodlands. Mm. You know, it's the same from right here all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. It's the same woods. So, anyway, this rose field was carved out. You know, and I took this Harrisock, one of the the, the best Harrisock I ever had, it was the first one. You know, I took her over there, and I was going to try to get out in that rose field to see if I couldn't flush a rabbit. Because, see, the rose growers, they hate them because they eat the bark around the bottom of the, and kill them. So she started moving. She was up on the tree line. On the right of her was the woods, and on the left of her was the rose garden. So she started moving further down toward to the point to where her back was to me. And I thought, crap. And, you know, she's, you know, so I called her. She looked over her shoulder and then looked back in front of her and moved again. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm losing her. I thought, I must have misread the weight this morning or something's off. You know, she's running. 
So I got the lure out, and I'm hurtling rosebush rows, you know, swinging this lure, trying to get this bird's attention, and she'd just glance over her shoulder and go further in. She took off into the woods. So when I finally caught up with her, I mean, I was terrified. When I finally caught up with her, I saw what was going on. She was chasing not just a squirrel, but a fox squirrel. <laughs> now, we, our fox squirrels around here, they average about two to two and a half pounds. But there's a, a number of them out there that get up to three pounds. She weighed two pounds, okay? And plus all that I had seen and been told about the horrors of your bird tangling with a squirrel. You know, I was still trying to get her down. I was swinging that lure and blowing the call. But meanwhile, I was watching this chase, and it was going from tree to tree. Well, you know, red tails and harris hawks, I, I would say probably raptors in general, they learn in threes. Uh, once, is a, once is an occurrence. Twice is a coincidence. But three times is a pattern. The third time that it was going to cross from one tree to another. She was ready. When that squirrel balled up on the end of that limb, she she crouched down and was coiled up like a spring. And when it leaped out into space, there was about a four-foot jump to the next tree. Well, at two foot, she nailed it. And then you know how they spin coming down, like I call it copter down, auto gyro, you know. She hit the ground and a hell of a fight broke out. Well, I had been told if your bird ever gets tangled up with a squirrel, don't run in on her because you might distract her and get her hurt. So I squatted right where I was. She's like 10 foot in front of me, and she's she's involved in a hell of a brawl. I mean, to the extent that there was, I mean, he outweighed her a pound. And uh, so sometimes she was on top, and other times he was on top. You know, he was a big buck. And uh, she'd get him on top. She'd spread her wings out and for for to stabilize herself. And she'd just kind of bend her elbows and squeeze so hard that she would just tremble. And she'd do that for several seconds, and then she'd just collapse on top of him. Just uh, She'd just use every ounce of strength she had to squeeze him, and then he would, then he would explode again, and it was on. You know, man, it seemed like they fought there for an hour, but it was probably two or three minutes, you know. But to me, it seemed like an eternity until finally she stood up and she started picking at him. Oh, I was horrified. I thought, man, she's she's got to be missing something. You know, she's got to be hurt. But I made into her and was pulling her wings back, feathers back, checking her out. It's not a scratch. And that's when it hit me. You know, for her, the, 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 as she squeezed the life out of that squirrel, you know, all of her frustrations, you know, just kind of drained out of her. She became really calm. While at the same time, I was watching what would be my future. You know, that all of my frustrations of two years with having to drive 100 miles to kill a rabbit. You know, I could find squirrels any day of the week, any time. You know, I could find squirrels. You know, and I felt like the Harris hawk, you know, is what introduced me 
to squirrel hawking. You know, that I got drug into it by this this Harris hawk. And I hunted the rest of that year in a cast with the other bird, which is not a great squirrel bird. But she wouldn't even chase them on her own. She had to be, you had to put the other bird up and then she'd chase them. You know, it's like, I don't want it, but I don't want you to have it kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so I thought this, the Harris hawk was the answer to my, my situation and squirrels, you know. So I called Don that night because even though I was not no longer an apprentice, I called him. I wanted his approval, you know. I mean, because, you know, I'm going to be a reflection on him for the rest of my falconry life, you know, because he signed the papers. He allowed this knucklehead in, you know, to the <laughs> yeah. to the fold. So I wanted his I wanted his approval. So I called him, told him what had happened. And he kind of got quiet. and He goes, is she OK? I said, man, she ain't got a scratch. And I said, can I can I be up front with you about something, Don? He goes, what's that? I said the same thing, Harold. How how Webster said when he saw his first squirrel kill. I said it was the dangest thing I ever saw. <laughs> it was a, it was spectacular. He says, "Well, can you find more squirrels than rabbits?" I said, "Duh, <laughs> hell yeah." He goes, "Well then, Gary, I think you should hunt what you can find." The only permission that I needed from anybody in falconry was his. You know, he's the only one I really cared what he thought about me, you know, because I didn't want him to ever regret signing those papers, you know. So, you know, for years I thought that the that the Harris Hawks solved my problem, and she did, actually. But it wasn't until I sponsored a guy for the first time I sponsored somebody who was going to have to fly a red tail, but then after he'd done his duty, you know, after he had been initiated into falconry, we could load up the trucks and go down and get him a real bird. <laughs> you know? Yeah. A month later, he was kicking our ass <laughs> with a tearsal red tail. Mm -hmm. Kicking our ass big time. You know? I mean, he was calling me every day. Got another one. <laughs> you know, sending me videos, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so, you know, you don't have to beat me over the head. I realized that the red tail was the best tool for that job, not the Harris hawk. They can do it, but, you know, a female Harris hawk is about the same size and weight as a tearsal red tail, average. Sure. But there again, although they, they are about the same weight, you look at their conformation. They don't have nearly as much meat on the Harris. Doesn't have as much meat on their toes. Uh, they're just more frail. When they fly, they fly like butterflies, you know, compared to a tearsal redtail who is a, a tank. You know, they're built lower and stockier and meatier, and they've, they've, their flight is. It takes more effort for the red tail to fly, but that's because they're carrying all this shock power, you know, that when they hit something, you know you've been hit, you know, and they're extremely strong. I mean, they're just brutes. And on top of that, their feet are meaty enough where they can take a bite, you know, and typically, you know, you always get concerned about any bite, but typically by the time you get home, you can't find it. 
you know, because squirrels' teeth are, I mean, needle sharp. In fact, they look like a needle. You know, if you look at them, you know, your first impression is they look like a beaver's teeth, you know, these two in the top, two in the bottom. And uh, they can do some damage, but not just by going in and out, you know, because and they're clean. Their teeth are clean because they gnawing on wood and nuts and all that all day. So they don't even have bad breath, you know. So I went back to the red tail. And it didn't take me long to where I knew I was at home. And, you know, in my first book, I wrote, uh, I had a chapter in there about Harris Hawks and Squirrel Hawking. And since I have changed my opinion about that, I, I, I don't, I mean, I can't tell somebody that, you know, you, you shouldn't fly a Harris Hawk, uh, you know, because uh, now I flew this with that one bird. I flew her for four or five years, and she never got a serious serious bite. But uh, on the other hand, uh, I've known other people, you know, that that have had Harris's bitten. And red tails, too, don't get me wrong, but the red tail is most likely going to handle it better, you know, the, the bite. The only—I know that a female— most people in this country got primarily what I call cat squirrels. They call gray. And a, a female Harris can handle them like a champ. You know, still the question about the meat on the feet. But uh, but they can handle that job and, and uh, re, re, relatively safely. We have fox squirrels here, you know, and they are beasts. I mean, they're just a muscle with claws and teeth. You know, they they spend their days pulling themselves up trees with their fingernails, you know, and they can run on the underside of a limb just as easily as they can on top. They can they can jump out of a tree 60 foot up and hit the ground and never miss a step. I mean, they're beasts. You know, they're tough. So, you know, nowadays I've got it down to what is the best tool for that job. And the best tool for that job, and this is not up for debate, and only a fool would argue about this, and the, the best tool for that job is a female red tail, hands down. You know, it's not, there's, there's, there's no debate about it. Secondly, a tearsal red tail. And coming into a third place would be the female Harris. I I agree with the with the, the Colsons that you should never put a tearsal Harris Hawk up against squirrels. That and so most of these people you go to every club's got a couple of guys that are flying a cast of Harris's and almost always it's a male and a female. And the, the their logic is that uh I might want to breed them someday, you know. Well for me, that's not a good excuse to pit a bird that's going to be weighing in at about a pound and a half or so, you know, up against a, a formidable. I mean, rabbits, you you catch a rabbit, they'll scream and they'll kick. And uh, I got a buddy whose Harris Hawk was killed by a jackrabbit last year, but it was a freak thing, you know. That's a jackrabbit, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, with a cottontail, yeah, uh, they they get to a certain point where they accept their fate and go into shock. Yeah, you know, and they just give in to it. Squirrels, 
Not so much. No, no. They no. fight to the death, to their last breath. Mm-hmm. You know, they're fighting to live, and they're going to use. They got tools. You got claws like a cat and teeth like a beaver. You know, and they're going to use every bit of it as much as they can. You know, and uh, you know, initially, initially, I was kind of. Uh, the redheaded stepchild in Texas, uh, not with my sponsor and my few closest falconry friends, but there were a lot of people that didn't that didn't want their kids hanging out with me, you know, because <laughs> he's hunting squirrels with those birds, and that's unethical and irresponsible. You know, it's putting his birds at an unnecessary risk, you know. But hey, well, on my side of the coin. Success is a hell of a lot more fun than failure, 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 you know. So, you know, I didn't really care what anybody thought. But about five years later, my sponsor, who was again president of the THA, called me up and said, you know, because I had just cut off all contact. I, I dropped my membership with THA. I dropped membership with NAFA. I was just a, a, a maverick, a loner out there doing my thing. You know, I didn't want I didn't need any uh, criticisms from people. I didn't have to live with that. I could just take it on myself. You know, he called me one night. You still flying? Oh, yeah. Still hunting squirrels? Oh, yeah. Are you doing okay? I said, yeah. I said, great. It's fantastic. Stacking them like cordwood in the bottom of the freezer. You know, (laughs) the birds eating squirrels all through the molt. I don't have to buy food, you know. He goes, well, I was wondering why we hadn't seen you around. I said, well, I didn't think y'all wanted me around. He goes, what made you think that? Uh, 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 One of the previous presidents had called me, and I won't tell you what he said because it wouldn't be family friendly. (laughs) But uh, he cursed me for what I was doing. And I thought, well, that's the president of the Texas Hawking Association. So, you know. So I disassociated myself. He says, well, I just wanted you to know that uh, he don't speak for all of us. We love you, Gary, and we want you to be around. In fact, the reason I was calling you tonight is that I was going to ask you if you'd be our keynote speaker at the meet this year in Waco. I was stunned. (laughs) Of course, if anybody else would have asked me, I might would have had second thoughts about it, but it was Don. He asked. Of course, I'd do anything for him, you know. So I agreed. And now you have to understand how extreme that I was back then. I wore tree spikes on my legs and carried smoke bombs. And if a squirrel went into a hole, I'd just run up that tree like a squirrel. And I'd dump a couple of smoke bombs in there, and either he'd come out or he wouldn't, you know. But eventually I learned there's other squirrels in these woods, you know. <laughs> uh, because by the time you would get all the way up there, the bird would have lost interest and moved on anyway, you know. But but I was extreme. I had, I'd had to invent equipment, you know, protective equipment. I mean, first of all, there wasn't any falconry outfitters back then you know you you had to do uh, except for pete asborno you know asborno bells best bells ever made i'd say i'd put them i'd put noble bells right up there with asborno bells but uh but but the, back then they were like eight bucks a pair you know and they were awesome bells so anyway uh 
I went down there and I had all this equipment. I was going to give a serious lecture on squirrel hawking, you know. So I had a small meeting room, had a long table, like a school cafeteria table. And I had the tree spikes, uh, the squirrel chaps that I had invented at the time, and uh, smoke bombs and, you know, all this stuff laid out on the table, all serious-like and everything. And, of course, I had had to develop a way to put down the squirrels, you know, because I, I cannot I cannot stand to watch somebody use an ice pick or and you don't want to use any bladed item that has an edge on it because the bird's liable to reach out there and grab it. You know, so here comes a guy with an ice pick and he's digging around and it's just inhumane to me. You know, I can't stand to watch it. When I can kill them in 20 seconds painlessly by either choking them, depending on where the bird's feet are, I'll either choke them or get my thumb and index finger around their neck and just squeeze. They're already out of breath from the chase and the and the fight, so they're already winded. So, Or if the bird's foot's in the way, you can collapse their ribcage. You know, and crush their lungs. If you can feel around, you feel that little heart in there beating, you can squish it up, they'll kick out, you know. But it takes about 15 to 20 seconds and they're done. And it's humane, you know. So, you know, I'm getting out there and I'm talking about tree spikes and smoke bombs and how to kill a squirrel with your bare hands. And these guys start laughing. There was probably. 25 to 28 people in the room you know the club was pretty still pretty small then and they started laughing you know now sitting on the front row were a couple of guys that i thought would probably be my biggest critics and i i began the speech by saying you know the definition of falconry is the taking of wild game with a trained raptor amen you know everybody's with me and i said the secret to successful falconry is to find out what catchable game you have the most of and then choose the right bird for that job. And those guys that I, I thought were going to be my critics, you know, one of them was a veterinarian, you know, okay. Amen. You know, the, I had them, you know, so that alleviated a lot of my fear. But then when I got into the lecture, they started laughing. I mean, because, I mean, some of them were laughing so hard, they were having tears coming down their cheeks. They were laughing so hard because, you know, I'm, East, I'm an East Texas hillbilly. I got a little bit of an accent, and I'm very animated. And and then all this weird stuff that is so different from any other kind of falconry, you know. I mean, I had one long winger come down and go out with me one time. This was after that. Uh, Jay Lemer. Uh, a long winger up in the McKinney. He come out and spent a weekend with us. And that after it was all over, I said, what do you think, Jay? He said, man, it's like hawking on bars because it was so different. You know, there are similarities. Some some aspects of squirrel hawking can resemble like the stoop when a squirrel bails out and running on the ground. You know, like a rabbit chase or, or uh, the stoops that are made by onto the squirrels by the birds, you know, similar to a stoop on a duck, you know. But then that's the end of the similarities. After that, it's completely different. 
In fact, I call it the crack cocaine of falconry, you know, because <laughs> if you ever experience it, you could get hooked on just one experience, you know. So if you don't approve of it, stay away from it, you know. But uh, at any rate, uh, my wife was one of the very few meets she ever went with me. You know, but she was standing at the back of the room and she at first I thought, OK, is that what this is about to get me up here and humiliate me to laugh at me? You know, and then I looked at the back room and my wife was laughing just as hard as everybody else. She was laughing. Then I realized this is so bizarre, you know, to these folks that have been bathed and baptized in so-called traditional falconry, that this was all just unbelievably different mm-hmm. you know and and of course with my personality it kind of, so then i decided i'm just gonna run with it you know they're having a good time i'm gonna run with it so i did and everybody had a great time and then a few years later this is after i'm back in the fold you know a few years later we were had our meet at abilene sunday afternoon i was going loading up to go home and the vice president of the club at that time was Steve Olson, a very accomplished long winger. In fact, he had an apprentice, uh, Manny Carrasco. I think you've interviewed or, or spoken with Manny. And uh, he's an artist extraordinaire. But, he, uh, you know, Steve, when he signed his papers, he, said, he gave him my phone number and said, this is the guy you need to talk to because I hadn't flown a red tail in 30 years. This guy is into him, you know. So uh, Manny was wound up being one of my what I call foster apprentices, you know, and uh, and made a hell of a squirrel hawker. I mean, he he was a good learn, you know. He took he listened to every word I said and did everything I advised him to do, and became a phenomenal falconer. But anyway, so uh, I'm loading the truck. Gonna make that six hour drive back to my house in East Texas after a, a meet. And Steve come running out. I, he's a guy I thought would be one of my big critics, you know, but he's very supportive. So it just blew my mind. So he runs out there and he says, Hey, Brewer, before you leave, let me ask you something. I said, What? He said, uh, You know, we're sponsoring our first NAFA meet next year in Amarillo. And I said, Yes, sir. He goes, I was just wondering if you'd give that same speech that you gave in Waco, if, if you'd give it at NAFA meet. I said, I was, I was stunned, you know, and I said, well, sure, you know, and then I left somewhere between Abilene and East Texas. It, it, the thought occurred to me, you know, I'd kind of toyed about writing a book on Squirrel Hawk, and since it was just virtually not that common you know or at least as far as i knew you know i don't think i'm the first guy to ever kill a squirrel with a bird of prey uh and i'm reasonably confident that i'm not the first guy that ever did it on purpose you know but i do feel confident that i'm the guy that legitimized it okay so so anyway on the way home it dawned on me well if you were ever gonna write a book this would be the opportune time to introduce it. It would be at that Texas meet the following year. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I wrote the book, 
Now, a lot of people don't realize that every word in that book was written on the steering wheel of my car while I was driving. That was smart. Yeah. <laughs> I, I made me a little rig with a, on a clipboard that I could put my steering wheel tilted all the way up, and I'd hook it on there. A lot of highway driving, you know. And I could write without looking down. Every now and then I'd look down and get back on the line, you know. But it was illegible to anybody but me. That night I would transfer it onto a floppy disk. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people don't remember floppy disks. But uh, I had an old Apple IIe boat anchor, yeah. you know, dinosaur, you know. But yeah, anyway. That was back in the day when the floppy disks were about the size of a plate. Yeah. <laughs> a giant one. So. Yeah. Anyway, I wrote the book. Well, then I got to the point uh, it was written. You know, I didn't have an outline, just a table of contents, you know, and I just title the chapter and start writing. I wrote that book one pass. I didn't go back and change anything. It, what you see was what came out first, you know. I mean, since there wasn't any other books out there on Squirrel Hawk and nobody could go, well, that ain't right, you know. That's not true. You know, so it was pretty much at that particular time. It was the gospel, you know, as mm -hmm. according to Squirrel Hawking. And uh, I did let my wife read the manuscript, and she thought she knew me before. You know, and I said, you you think you know me now, but you read that, you know who I really am, you know. And, uh, and she did. I mean, her attitude towards me and my crazy passion changed. She still don't get it, you know, but she's very tolerant of it and actually can be my critic. If I'm not practicing falconry up to the level that I'm capable of, she'll let me know about it. You need to practice what you preach, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, But anyway, so I called. I got the book all written. I had a manuscript, big four-inch uh notebook thing and i didn't know what to do how to go how to go about it so i called hal webster he's the only other book author i knew it said i said well you know i've, uh, I've written this book i got this manuscript uh-huh i said i just want to know what do i need to do you know what do i need to go with this thing now to get this thing into made into a book and he goes well well, son, the first thing you got to do is get somebody to read it. <laughs> and I said, well, I was kind of hoping you would do that. <laughs> and there was silence. And I thought, uh-oh, I stepped over the line. You know, but instead, he was he was stunned. I mean, that's how humble the guy was. You know, he said, well, hey, I'd be happy to read it for you, son. So I... I, I UPSed it to his front porch. It landed on his front porch on a Friday. On a Monday morning, I got to work a little early. I was an insurance adjuster. I'm sitting at my desk and the phone rings. You know, who the hell's calling at this hour? It's 6 o'clock in the morning. And so I answered it, and it was his printing company that he that printed his book, uh, Justin's. And they said, uh, Mr. Webster called us early this morning and said, we need to call you and make a deal. <laughs> so and he wanted me to print like 5,000 of them, you know. 
And uh, if you're out there and you're thinking about writing a falconry book, you need to get out of your mind that you're <laughs> going to make money on this thing because, you know, you're never going to be on the bestseller list in New York. You know, uh, you'd be lucky if a fraction of the falconry world buys that book. So, you know, it's got to be a labor of love, not money. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't go into it uh, thinking, I'm going to make some money because that ain't going to happen. You know, not maybe not. Maybe in the long run, if you write a book that is timeless, you know, that uh, people are going to buy, you know, years down the road, you may realize some benefit. But you know what my profit was is that a couple of years after that book came out, uh, I started being invited by state clubs wanting me to come speak. And I would always ask them, I don't charge anything for being a keynote speaker, but here's my fee. I want you to fly me in a couple of days early, and I want to go out with some of your people and watch them and, you know, go hawking with them, you know. And uh, so, I mean, I've done it. I've been to at least 18 states in the in the continental United States, and some of them twice and a few of them three times. You know, and uh, so uh, that has been all the profit I needed is to to be able to go for people to fly me in and take care of me and then go out and listen to what I have to say. That 45 minutes on Saturday is just fulfilling my obligation. The real value of me coming up there with those clubs, because most of these clubs are pretty small, was – the time I spent with them in the field, one-on-one, mm-hmm. you know, there was always something that would happen in those two days that would alter what I was going to talk about on Saturday night. And as you probably figured out, I don't have a problem talking, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'm not afraid of uh, standing up in front of people and talking, Yeah, you know, so, yeah. uh, but, you know, so I had the book. You know, uh, Hal read the book and he thought it was a classic. He told me it'll be right up on the ship, same right next to the classics, boy. He was really impressed with it. Now I don't know if he was, you know, fluffing my feathers or what, but but he seemed to, you know, we that really sealed our friendship from there on. He would come to some of those states that I was speaking at to hear me speak, you know, and I would sell his books and he would sell mine. You know, I would tell them, somebody looking at my book, if you don't have that one already, then you need to get that one first and then this one, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so Napami came around. I grabbed a couple of books, cases of books, because frankly, I thought I'm going to be eating most of these, you know, because Squirrel and it's taboo. Now, I gave that speech and the room was packed. There's two or three got up and left. The room was packed with these guys in bib overalls and rubber boots, and I didn't realize. And this is true of any falconer who does anything to uh, improve falconry. You know, you you do it you you do it to solve your own problem. That's what I did. I did. I never dreamed not for a, not one second that what I when I solved my problem here that I was faced with that it would be of any value to anybody else 
you know. I, so, but it, it's true that you, if you solve a big problem of your own, you need to take into account that there might be other people out there who hasn't solved, that has the same problem, but haven't solved it yet. So you need to sit down and write this down, you know. And uh, so, you know, I gave, I had two spools of slides for slide projector. That's back when that was the PowerPoint, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, lots of Harris Hawks chasing squirrels, a lot of action stuff, you know, really, really good slides. And these guys on the front row, man, they were just jaws were dropped open. They were just taking all this in. These guys were from east of the Mississippi, right? They had the same problem I had, you know, and and they decided uh, falsely. They decided that NAFA, since I was speaking at a NAFA meet, that NAFA had put their stamp of approval on this squirrel hawking thing. I even thought that, but you know, the, but NAFA didn't know anything about me going to be giving that speech. <laughs> The Texas Club asked me to do that speech. Never had no, they got, they were blindsided <laughs> because you have to understand that the, at that time and for a few years after that, if you killed a squirrel at a NAFA meet, you didn't get a game pen. <laughs> you got a miscellaneous pen equivalent to a lizard or a toad frog or a grasshopper. <laughs> okay. Okay. And uh, so, uh, you know, but the people that were there sitting in the room, they thought this is it's okay. It's not taboo anymore. You know? And so they went home and started doing it on purpose, you know? And uh uh so but a few years later I was in uh I think it was Ohio and there was a man there uh, who I became friends with, Daryl Perkins. Uh he's a goshawk guy. Through and through. He's a goshawk guy. And he, he's not a squirrel hawking person, but he is a falconer. And, uh, and he's all in on anything falconry, you know, I mean, and he happened to be there and, uh, he asked me if I could hook him up when, to go see some squirrel hawking, you know, so we went out and had a, had a whole day. There was several guys there that were serious squirrel hawkers, and we went out, and it was a, it was a sh extreme squirrel hawking for the whole day. And Daryl got to see that, you know, he had a blast. And uh, that, that later that night at dinner, I said, "Would you believe, Daryl, that if you kill a squirrel at an avenue, you don't get a game pen, you get a miscellaneous pen, like a toad frog, lizard, or a grasshopper." <laughs> No, you're kidding. I said, no, sir. I'm dead serious. Serious as a heart attack. Well, uh, what I didn't realize at the time is that a few years later, he would be the president <laughs> of North American Faculty Association. He calls me up one year and he goes, hey, Brewer, are you going to the NAFA meet in, in Kearney this year? And I said, no, I don't think so, Daryl. He goes, well, why not? I said, well, I ain't lost anything in Kearney. It's too damn cold up there. Uh, I'm just too soft, you know, for that. And he goes, well, you better, you need to come. And I said, well, why? And he goes, I ain't going to tell you. He said, I, he said but I, I'm going to tell you, if you don't come, you'll be sorry. Oh, okay. You know, so I gathered up my 
handicapped daughter, and we went when the time came. Well, of course, me and a buddy of mine from Kentucky was there, and we hunted all the way till dark, you know, and then we had to get back to the hotel and clean up, change clothes, and then get to the banquet. So we were running late. So when I got to the back doors of the, the room that they were all in, I kind of snuck in the back door, and Daryl was up there giving his State of the Union speech, you know, that they do. And uh, man, he noticed me coming in, and he, he grinned at me and finished up what he was talking about. It's as if he was waiting on me to get there before he got to this, you know. But he announced that in, from that day forward, NAFA would be awarding a game pin for a squirrel kill. And the room went berserk. <laughs> Whistling, hooping, standing ovation. I mean, it was awesome. And, uh, and then it would be several years later, uh, you started seeing articles popping up in Hawk Chalk and American Falconry Magazine, squirrel hawking stuff. You know, the, I mean, we had come to our port, you know, we were we were in. And then it was a few years later that uh, NAFA sponsored their first official squirrel hawking meet in Alabama, Camden, Alabama. I spoke at that meet about the history because there's a lot of people at that meet that hadn't been falconers long enough to to realize that. Squirrel hawking has not always had the acceptance that it has now. In fact, the first the first round of speaking engagements that I made uh, not long after the book was written, you could go to the weathering yard at any meet, count the red tails, and you had a census of how many apprentices were there. And uh, because I was kind of a novelty, you know, uh, if you've been a falconer for a long time, you know that ever so often the club has to bring in a, a keynote speaker that would be relative to the apprentices, you know, because we're sitting out there every year as apprentices and we're hearing about the Aplomado Falcon and the, the Golden Eagles and, you know, and all that kind of stuff that's just not it's it's out of our reach. You know, uh, but then ever so often the, the board says, you know, we need to bring in somebody that could that the apprentices could relate to. So I was an author and I was a novelty kind of guy. And so they would bring me in. This is on the first round. They'd bring me in uh, so the apprentices could have, you know, somebody that they could sit on the edge of their chairs and get excited about, you know. But then when I began to make the second round, which a lot of those states I've spoke of twice, you know, you couldn't do that. You couldn't go to the weather in your area and count the red tails and know how many apprentices were there. Not even close, because most of the birds in the weather in yard were red tails, you know. The number one bird was a red tail, and the number one game was squirrels going the second time. And... uh you know, sometimes I have to pinch myself, you know, because I'm just, I'm nobody. I'm just this guy out in deep east Texas that had a problem, wanted to be a falconer really bad, more than anything, you know. And 
solved my problem, not not necessarily to the satisfaction of a lot of the community of falconry, not you know, but but I became successful at least in my own eyes. You know, I was having a ball. You know, the chases were amazing. I mean, I I think you've hunted squirrels, and mm-hmm. you know that you know a, a rabbit chase. Now, I, I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this. It's nothing that you haven't. It's nothing I haven't already probably said myself. Yeah. So okay. I, I know well, what you're getting ready to say. <laughs> well, it's a drag race. <laughs> yeah. You know, first one screw up wins mm-hmm. or loses rather. Yeah. And uh, so it's pretty direct. In a few seconds, it's all over. And then you don't usually get to see it half the time either. Right. Yeah. And uh, But with squirrel hawking, the chases can be short mm-hmm. sometimes. But typically, with a good bird and some good squirrel woods, you're going to get chases that can last up to a half hour to an hour. Yeah. I had one last one time with the with that cast of Harrison's I flew. That thing lasted two hours. And it was really, really cold. We actually built a fire. You know, and took turns over there helping the birds out, you know. Uh, but uh, but anyway, and we didn't ever catch that squirrel, which was, yeah. you know, since neither one of those birds had anything to prove to anybody, yeah. was pretty cool, you know. Yeah, I mean, and, and chiropractors love us, too, because, you know, all the neck problems that we right. have from scraping. Squirrel hawker's <laughs> neck. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But, I've yeah. even thought about building a jacket that had a, one of those pads. You know, like you see them football, football players. Football players, where, yeah, the yeah. C of the C collar so type can, deals. Yeah. You know, so what we <laughs> typically do is when your neck starts hurting, we just lay down on the on our backs on the ground and watch it. In fact, <laughs> Manny Carrasco did a cartoon. And that cartoon was me and him and his brother uh, were laying on our backs on the ground watching this squirrel chase going on. And, the, of course, my dog was yapping up the tree. And <laughs> you could see all the stars and pals and bams and yeah. all that kind of stuff coming out of the tree. That was a true story. That That's actually funny. really happened. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I know you've, you've already shared, like, so many really cool stories and experiences and things like that. But before we kind of end up wrapping this up and everything, I do want to get kind of an updated modern opinion from you on one particular subject though. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, I know for me, at least it's the subject of, of squirrel chaps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know you were kind of the one of the, you're pretty much the main person that initially you know originated the concept and everything but there's still i mean obviously squirrel hawking isn't taboo for the moral majority anymore right it's you know it's an established especially thing. east of the mississippi river you'll get lynched sure <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly uh. exactly so but there is still for the most part a very divided consensus when it comes to like the use of something like like squirrel chaps and stuff like there's there's still kind of a a divide a pretty it's pretty even split you know in preference Mm -hmm. so i mean do you have any uh, you know a difference in opinion absolutely um go ahead and share it okay i wrote an article many years ago when during the time when we were still being judged Mm -hmm. okay and it was called Squirrel Hawking, Minimizing the Risk. And, of course, you know, that day when I was with that Harris Hawk on my first squirrel kill, and I had already resolved in my mind, this is where I'm going. 
but I felt like I had an obligation to try to do everything I could to make it safe or safer. You know, look, I did a study one year on, you know, every year the hawk chalk that comes out in the summer, you know, it's got all the club reports. Johnny flew this and Bobby flew that and this, that and the other happened. And, uh, you know, they would get the uh, red tail got decapitated on a barbed wire fence, stooping in <laughs> on a rabbit. Uh, Johnny's uh, peregrine was hit by a tractor trailer chasing a duck across the interstate. Uh, you know, and just on and on, wings broken, stooping in on things. So, you know, this whole this whole thing about squirrel hawking was based on the risks, you know. And, of course, I went back through all my old hawk chalks and everything, and I collected all this data. And, of course, in that same thing where you'd had this, this bloodbath of birds being injured and hurt, you know, tracing traditional quarry, you know, traditional birds chasing traditional quarry, a lot of things, bad things were happening, you know, because that's what, that's the way it is when you're out there doing it, you know, things can happen. And so I keep in that same article, they would go in and a little Johnny's bird got bit by a squirrel. Then they'd spend like three or four paragraphs, you know, going on and on about the evils of squirrels and, you know, how you shouldn't intentionally expose your bird to this because this is what could happen. You know, when it turns out that it was a minor flesh wound, you know, that healed up within a few days. You know, and, it, you know, so anyway, what I found at the end of that research was that it was no more risky to fly a, uh, a red tail on squirrels as it was to fly anything on anything. And uh, so, but I still, you know, uh, I wrote this article called Minimizing the Risk, and it was based on three things. Number one, selection of bird. Choose the right bird for the job. Stack the deck in your favor with the choice of your bird. And that is, as I said earlier, like an hour ago, I said that the female red tail is, without a doubt, the best tool for that job. Okay? So, selection of bird, number one. Number two, protective equipment. And, you know, uh, over the years, I've designed all kinds of protective equipment for red tails. You know, I even sh thought about using shark mail, you know, to somehow fashion that into some <laughs> kind of protection. You know, you know, you can never eliminate any risks, but you can minimize the risks that you know are out there. Okay, so uh, the first squirrel chaps that I invented, which a lot of people call them barrel chaps. I call them traditional chaps because they were the first ones that I designed. Uh, I went through them, and then I come up with this idea that's still being sold, not by not by me. Uh, one of my foster apprentices learned how to make them, and and he's selling them from. I, I I know he's selling them through Northwoods, and I mean not Northwoods, but uh, Western Sporting, and maybe through Northwoods too. But there, I call them squirrel boots. And what the difference was is they were the traditional chap, but at the bottom they had a they had a uh, skirt, a leather skirt that covered the top of the foot. 
And I used them for a number of years and sold them. You know, I made them and sold them through Brad's. Of course, again, you were working in the negative because as much labor as it took to make them, you couldn't charge enough to make any money off of them. You just were providing a service. You know, it's all about squirrel hawking for me. It always has been, you know, and and red tails. Uh, but, you know, I, I used those. I even made one. I invented one called I called the Deceiver. And at the bottom of the chap, instead of a, a leather skirt, I had fashioned leather toes that were, you know, three toes that stuck out so that when the bird had his foot planted in the squirrel, those leather toes were sitting on top of it. And they, the idea was that they would go for them instead of the bird's real toes. And uh, I used all these for a period of time, field tested them. And what I found in the long run was that that initial chap all things considered you know when you consider the the weight of those things when the bird is wearing them you know does it you know fighters fighters they they work out with weights on their wrists and their ankles you know so that they can build up those muscles so your muscles will come up to them you've seen uh, birds that you put the hood on them for the first time and they droop their head because they're just not used to that weight being on their head, you know. But all in all, that first design I came up with wound up being my first choice. Because uh, when you, the pros and the cons of all the designs. And now, as far as whether to wear them or whether not to wear them, uh, you know, any kind of protective equipment, I'm a staunch believer that, you know, you don't fly the bird naked, you know, that their justification for that is that, the you know, that there's no encumbering, uh, you know, interference from the things that are on their legs, you know, so they just fly them naked thinking that that's going to give them an advantage. And I disagree with that. I've been doing this a long, long time. And I've seen I've seen things happen. You know, I've had I've had more experience than most people of uh, waiting on Murphy's law. You know, Murphy was a falconer. You knew that, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Uh, but uh, you know, seeing things that happen and the the thing you don't want damaged is that leg. The bites on the toes are typically going to be uh, flesh wounds. And if you've got some of those traditional chaps on, there's two things that will draw a bite in most cases. One is I put something shiny in the front, like and, and it's been stars and diamonds, you know, studs, you know, what they call spots. But now you can't get the stars with long enough tangs on them to where the bird can't rip them off. But anyway, something shiny. Because bear in mind, when when the, the squirrel's on the ground fighting for his life and the bird's on top of him, they have no way to rationalize that those chaps are not part of him, you know. And so they're going to they're going to bite at that because that's in their face, you know. And I noticed that I would see a lot of bite marks at the end of the season uh, around that shiny spot that I would put in the front. You know, because it would attract their attention. It would be the first thing they noticed because it's like a beacon. And uh, so they'll either bite at that 
Or what's even more likely to take the bite is back in the back. I make my chaps where they they interlock. In other words, you can remove them and put them back on because there's a slot on one side and a head on the other, and they go together. You push the head through the slot, fold him back, put a jest strap through there, and they're on. And I do that uh, because if you ever have to remove the for an injury or a snake bite or something of that nature, you don't have to destroy the the legging. You know, you can you can take it off and you can change them out without trauma to the bird. You know, without having to cast them, I can do it on my arm one handed. And uh, so I definitely, I definitely do not recommend flying your birds at, at squirrels without that protective equipment. It's not, it's not a hundred percent, but you know, if your bird winds up getting a really bad bite on their legs, you got to live with that the rest of your life. Cause you didn't have squirrel chaps on them. You know, you, you may think you're a hot shot, Right now, because you're flying the birds free, so they'll have the ultimate freedom and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, uh, I don't put those chaps on them birds to limit their freedom. I put them chaps on the birds to protect them against most incidents of possible injury. You know, it's, it's just the right thing to do. And then the third point in the minimizing the risk, number three, would be... Uh, Modified technique or specialized technique. And what I mean by that primarily is when your bird grabs a squirrel up in the tree and it's coming to earth with it, you need to get your ass over there and be and meet them at contact if possible. But you need to get in there as soon as you possibly can and get control of that squirrel's head and neutralize the risk. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's your job. You know, that's, that is very important because when you start to choke them, they'll, they'll gape open their mouth and by poking them, uh, an ice pick in their ear or stabbing them with a knife, it's not going to cause them to open their jaws, but choking them or collapsing their rib cage, they'll gape open their mouth and let go, you know? Uh, so you know the uh and you can train the birds not only to accept this behavior from you but to actually look for it i use a uh a, a two-sided lure or there's a tidbit i don't put gobs of meat on my lures never ever and once they've learned to take that lure in the air i never just throw it on the ground ever again they have to catch it red tails and uh and oh, man they love it they're just, they get that shot of adrenaline out of the deal that they're addicted to, you know. But that lure during initial training, early training, creosh training, when you're getting them on to, you know, hot to the lure, they've got that lure, one side's always up, but there's another side with a tidbit as well, okay, but they're not aware of. So you you go in there for initially you go in there first and you just kind of get a hold of the lure and, and try to pry it up just to the point where they can see the other tidbit. Okay. And then once they, once they understand that you're going to roll that lure over so they can access the second tidbit, then I start getting more erratic. 
about the process. You know, I start running in there with them and dropping down to my knees and grabbing it, you know, and then rolling it up, you know, a little rough. Or I'll come from behind them and jump over them and spin around and squat down and grab it. You just start getting very erratic about your process because that's the way it's going to be when she hits the ground with a squirrel. They're going to be popping around like spit on a hot griddle, you know, on the ground. So you don't know which side you're going to have to come in on. You may have to reach in behind them. But they I've seen them, man, where they'd be. A bird would be on the ground with a big fox squirrel just, you know, fighting like crazy. And I've seen them as I was running toward them. I've seen them actually look over their wing like, where the hell are you? Get your ass over here. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that that was going through their head, but it certainly was the body language, you know, that they were they were needing help. You know, they were struggling. And uh, so those are the three things. And one of those things it, number two is protective equipment. I'm a believer in it, you know. Well, you know, thanks for your updated thoughts on that. You know, I mean, like I said, everybody, <laughs> as I always joke, you know, falconers and their and their opinions, you know, so to speak, and and everything else. But no, I mean, like I said, I I wanted to at least get you know straight from the source, you know, at least what the updated, you know, modified opinion on, on all that stuff was and, and everything. But, you know, I mean, I think, like I said, we've, we've been hearing a lot of great stories and, and, you know, I think have had a really great summation of your overall life and falconry experiences and everything. I mean, the surface. yeah, I, well, and, and, but I want to say one thing uh, before we terminate this discussion about, you know, that question to chaps or no chaps, mm -hmm. you know, I am a person who it's at one point early in my falconry life and, and for several years after that was judged, you know, uh, I think unfairly, but, uh, but eventually the majority came around, you mm -hmm. know, uh, but, you know, as far as I had a friend, I think he's the guy that started this naked squirrel hawking thing, you know, where he didn't fly anything on their legs. And, you know, I don't judge him for it. But if you ask me, you know, my opinion, that is my opinion, that you should use the protective equipment. He was a, an accomplished falconer in his own right and capable of making his own decisions. And his birds would have to live with whatever decisions that he made, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't my place to judge him. It's just you asked me what my opinion was, and, mm -hmm. and, I, and I said I'm very, very passionate about the way I feel about this matter. Sure. But I'm not going to judge anybody, you know, for if they, if they prefer to do it differently. I know what that feels like, and I'm not going to do it to somebody else. Yeah. No, that's fair enough, yeah. you know. But, you know, like, like I said, you know, I – that's a part, a big part of the reason why I enjoy recording and doing all these talks with people is so that people can listen to all the varied opinions in the community. It doesn't mean they got to follow every single one of them. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that necessarily that each person's experience isn't going to particularly differ from the next person. And there's several different right and wrong ways to do something mm -hmm. 
you know, as as the proverbial saying goes, there's definitely more than one ways to skin the cat, so to speak. Doesn't necessarily mean someone's completely right or completely wrong for doing necessarily certain things, you know. So I'm like you. I mean, I don't I try my best to, you know, people are going to practice and do and do what they want to do, you know, but I'm like, you You know, if people ask my opinion, I'll share it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do it or come away from all you're doing, sharing information. People can form their own opinions from that, you know, but um, now there are some things that are not opinion. Sure. You know, uh, that, that like the red tail female is the best tool for the job of squirrel hawking. That's, that's not my opinion. That's a fact, <laughs> you know, and, uh, some people think I don't, that I don't like Harris hawks. That's not true. I flew them for several years and I have a high respect for them. Uh, and if all I was going to be flying was rabbits, I'd probably have one, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. Uh, but they're just not, in my humble opinion, and, and I think that the, the reality supports that, is that they're not the best tool, the mm-hmm. best tool for that job. She is, red-tailed female. She's the best tool. That's not even arguable. That's not, that's not an opinion. That's just a fact. <laughs> and anybody that would argue that is a fool. <laughs> you know, I, I can say that. Because I have had a number of years. Look, if I thought the hair sock was a better tool or even as good of a tool, I'd be flying one, mm-hmm. right? I mean, or you know, other than that, I'd be an idiot, you know. But uh, anyway, just yeah. wanted to get that, squeeze that in there. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, once again, I think I think that most of the general consensus would would be in agreement anyway. You know what I mean? As far as that goes. And I mean, you're not going to get an argument out of me from I'm just from what I've seen in my personal observations. I I mean, I I agree. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to beat a nice size, chunky female red tail for that particular job. I mean, it's it's almost impossible pretty much to beat, you know. So, I mean, hey. But once again, certain people like what they like, and and hey, you know, some people right. also. I'm not the boss of them. Exactly, and <laughs> you know, some people just love Harris's more than Red Tails, right? And if that's and if what they if that's what they love, and and they are capable, may not always necessarily be the best tool for the job. But if you you've got to love what you're doing too, once again, they can do what they want. You know, my but, new book is called. Uh, and it's going to be out any time now. We're having some difficulties with all the COVID and the paper supplies and all that. that you know, getting this thing out uh, here lately. But things are on track now. But uh, it's titled Red Tail, the Workhorse of Falconry, an Operator's Guide. Hmm. And uh, uh, the third chapter in the book, and, and I, I, it's, it's titled, choices that's the third chapter in the book and you know uh probably most people won't read that book or read that chapter because it's not got an exciting title like the other chapters in the book <laughs> but you know it's based on the precept that you know the success or failure of your upcoming season is going to be determined by the choices you make today right sure. and, and it, it, there there was enough to write about 40 or 50 pages uh, concerning choices that people make you know and that there's some things that uh you know you just 
you have to make a choice and the and the 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 best choice is probably already out there and you have to override the what's what's known you know and to go against what the right thing is and it's going to show in your practice you know people uh people can learn from of course you don't never know the experience and background of the person who's given the advice mm-hmm. you know usually you don't and uh, so you know people get on their own and they're you know once they get a fairly de- fairly decent grasp of the generalities of falconry then they're in a place where they can start to make decisions and choices that may not be mainstream you know and that's how falconry progresses and stays dynamic you know 4000 years and we're still learning stuff you know i mean that's pretty dang amazing well yeah and then this is and i think the other general consensus most people can come to with this is you're never going to be a master of it by any stretch right. you know i mean you're never going to learn everything you need to learn because it's a constantly you know, evolving thing. And uh, for as long as it's been around, yeah, some of the core fundamental principles aren't arguable. And we still do things a lot of the same ways that people did it thousands of years ago, because you you shouldn't reinvent the wheel when it comes to certain things. But all that being said, every single one of these animals is completely different from Mm -hmm. the other pretty much. And we're all different. And there's always things you can learn. You know, since you brought that up, uh, uh, I'm a little embarrassed by the term, by the title master. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I mean, frankly, you know, I get treated like Elvis when I go speak at one of these clubs that invites me in. And, you know, I'm often described as uh, the father of squirrel hawking or uh, master falconer, Gary, uh, you know, or various other titles. It's Frankly, it's a little embarrassing to me because if anybody – considers himself a master you know they're only fooling themselves right there's no way anybody can master this no uh no. this this thing that we love so much otherwise it'd get boring yeah you know there'd be no there would be no problems to solve yeah you know and but you know i just are the guru <laughs> of, of red tails you know i've been just introduced as that and i you know i really i really am a little bit embarrassed by that because I don't see myself in any of those ways, you know what I'm saying? Sure. I come home from one of those meets and then my wife tells me to take out the garbage. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. No, I, I get it. And that's, that's why I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, yeah. Anybody that's worth their salt is going to joke into some degree about, because really as far as our system goes, it's just, it's putting in the time. It's it's not even necessarily a, a reflection of skill. It's it more so just a reflection of the time that's passed since you've that you've put into you know what what we do. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I'll never. I'll never be able to call myself a, a master falconer either. Right. I mean, or there's an just, expert. No, I mean, I mean, I don't know any experts about anything. No. Uh, falconry or otherwise i don't know any experts it just depends you know i mean maybe maybe theoretically if the only thing you ever did was one particular type of bird of a speed whatever you know like if if you only ever flew say like an imprint or a, a, a particular type of you know species and that's that's the only one you ever flew or did you know then you 
you might yeah, maybe well, be able to a, say that you know you you know whatever but there's you know. a difference between having lots of experience and knowledge mm-hmm. you know that's a time thing sure you know but to be an expert would insinuate or a master would insinuate that there's nothing new to learn mm-hmm. you know that we, sure. we know it all now sure you know that's the only way you could classify yourself as a master and that's why you know that that title somewhat embarrasses me no i agree i'm, I'm very flattered don't get me wrong <laughs> i'm very flattered <laughs> when people treat me uh, like they do when i go to a meet to speak uh but i don't want anybody to think that that's the way i view myself sure no, I get it. And yeah. yeah, no, but I mean, you're not going to, once again, it's another thing you're not going to get any argument out of me from, you know, I mean, Good. I don't, I don't think, um, yeah, I don't think we're ever going to, there's net, there's not going to be enough time in anybody's lives unless you're immortal, <laughs> yeah. you know, and even then it's like, well, yeah, I, yeah, I just don't, there's, there's way too many different things you can learn in this to, to right. ever be able to be a, a complete whatever you know right. but and i think everybody should that should be part of their their if they love falconry like many of us do uh then it should be their goal to leave it better than they found it mm-hmm. yeah. you know i mean that you know because i have benefited whether they realize it or not my family has benefited from my obsession with falconry it's made me a better husband a better father a better employee you know it's it, falconry and the principles that you learn from it if you're doing it in, in any way right it's going to bleed over mm-hmm. into the other areas of your life and uh you know and if you're not a good falconer you don't get good results mm-hmm. you know and those same principles you know will uh bleed over into your home life, your family life, your professional life. And in a positive way or a negative way, depending on how good of a falconer you are, how much how committed that you are to it. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Also, the the divorce rates in our community also speak a certain volume too. Yeah. <laughs> and that's unfortunate because you know, uh uh, I solved the problem of me and my wife bickering about uh, all my passions and obsessions. And, uh, you know, like one night I was at work. I worked at night. And so seven o'clock at night was my lunch. And I had a new bird, brand new bird out there in the chamber. And so at lunch, I called home and she answered. Hello. I said, hey, honey, how you doing? Have you checked on the bird? <laughs> and then she got quiet and I heard you know I said what's the matter she was crying you know and I said, I said what's the matter she goes don't you care how I am don't you want to know what I did today and I said well in the first place you answered the phone so I figure you're okay <laughs> secondly you don't I don't have to ask you if you want to tell me something you did today but what I don't know is how the bird is. <laughs> and uh, so I made a decision then that, you know, she, she said, that's all we ever talk about, some damn birds. Uh, if you had to choose between me and the bird, you'd take the bird. And I said, well, you know, you're probably right, but it, it's not because I don't love you. <laughs> it's because I don't think you have the right to give me that ultimatum. 
<laughs> you know. And so I decided I wasn't going to talk about it anymore with her. Mm. I was going, you know, I was going to respect that. I I understand because I know I talk about it a lot, you know. <laughs> so three days went by and I couldn't think of anything to say, you know. And so I get up one morning, go hawking. She gets up, uh, and I fixed us a bre- uh, what do you call it? Uh, Brunch. Brunch, yeah. Yeah, you know, sort sort of a breakfast and sort of a lunch. And so we're sitting there across from each other eating, and she goes, did you fly the bird this morning? I said, yeah. She goes, did you catch anything? I said, not today. Did you have any good flights? I said, I thought you didn't want to talk about this, (laughs) you know? And she goes, well, I don't want to shut me out of your life. And I reached over, and I put my hand on hers, and I said, honey, that is my life. It's my (laughs) life. It's who you married. You know, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it, it, soon after that, it dawned on me that I was creating the problem with falconry in that I was trying to be fair. See, with a woman, and I'm going to get a lot of hate mail over this. <laughs> the only the only satisfactory compromise or negotiation is when she gets her way. OK, that's that's the only satisfactory way to end a, uh, 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 you know, a negotiation or a compromise, okay? There's no coming to, you know, and so so then being fair or compromising or negotiating is just another word for argue, mm-hmm. okay? And so my problem was is that one week during the falconry season, she'd go, what are you doing Saturday? I go, well, what do you think I'm doing on Saturday? Well, <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I thought you and me and the kids, would, I thought we'd go to the zoo. Okay. So you feel like a turd. And so you decide, okay, I'm going to make an exception this Saturday. I'm going to go to the zoo, you know. And so, of course, now she just won a battle and she won it fairly easily, mm-hmm. you know. So if you can choose her one time then you know this could be a regular thing you know and we were constantly arguing constantly arguing and so finally i just i just i just had enough of it and i put my foot down and i said look from october to april i'm a falconer don't plan anything on weekends you know because you know what i'm going to be doing but from April to October, I'm not a falconer. I'm just a regular guy. We can do whatever you want. You pick. I'll do whatever you want. And I said, that's it, period. It's not up for negotiation. It's not compromisable, period, the end. That's it. (laughs) And you know what? We quit arguing about it Hmm. because everybody knew. Everybody knew, you know, where it stood. You know, six months out of the year, I'm a falconer. I'm going to be doing that. Don't get your feelings hurt, you know, mm-hmm. and the rest of the year we'll do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Well, That's, to me, it can't get no more fair than that. Everybody figures out their own way. And if they know you're serious, <laughs> if they know you're serious about it, they'll either leave or they'll get with the program. Well, 
therein lies the the thing. Yeah. You know, sometimes there's a vast majority that uh, that aren't willing to get with the program, and that's just everybody's well, that's everybody's path. Really, you they know, they didn't really love you as much as they said they did anyway. If that's the case, <laughs> you know, there's an argument for that too, yeah. for sure. Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's you know, like I said, that's another interesting topic. And most falconry husbands are trustworthy because they're too busy out chasing this bird around and doing that to get in trouble. Right. You know, I mean, my wife doesn't always know where I'm at or who I'm with, but she knows what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. you know, and that we've been married this past August was 47 years. It's a lot worse things for someone to be obsessed with or all in on. Yeah. (laughs) I told her, I said, my my passion could be getting drunk and chasing women. There you go. You could have it a lot worse. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And the women do tend to uh, maybe not, they they may not even realize it themselves, but they kind of consider that bird as being competition like another woman. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. some of them do. They don't realize it that they're viewing it that way, but they, but they want to want you to choose between them and the bird mm-hmm. a lot of times, and just yeah. so they can feel like they're still, you know, <laughs> on top of the heap there. You yeah, know? right. But it's not like that. from our perspective, mm-hmm. it's not like that. The bird's a whole different thing. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't mean also that the same thing can't conversely work, you know, from, hey, you know, if you if if the wife in the relationship is a falconer, too, you know, right. I mean, the same. It, it is what it is. Everybody's well, got. Usually every, she's not. Yeah. <laughs> well, regardless of what the situation is, everybody's got but, to figure out I their own paths you, and, and I can compromise. tell you this much. Falconry is kid friendly hmm. and should not be. uh an excuse to get away from your kids. Sure. Kids are fantastic bush beaters and you know, I, they can't be still. I wish I wish my kid was more into it, but he's not. Yeah. You know, he, he never when they really were young. Has They're not now as adults. Yeah. You know. My kid never was really into it. I think he came like I said, he came he came hunting with me, I think, three different times throughout his childhood. He's fifteen now. And every so often he'll ask about it. But for the most part, he could have cared less. He was, you know, the more of the norm in that regard. But it is what it is. I've got photographs of my son when he was two years old. He was my firstborn. (laughs) When he was two years old, he's sitting on my shoulders. Got two handfuls of my hair. That's how he's staying there. I got a, a, a falconry bag on one shoulder and a diaper bag on the other one. And then I've got a stick in one hand and a. Harris Hawk on the other, you know, <laughs> and that's true. I never felt like he was in the way, you know, he grew up. And in fact, he was in middle school before he realized that not everybody's daddy did this, you know, because all the guys that popped into my house were falconers, you know. Mm-hmm. So he thought it was a real common thing. Yeah. Till he got in junior high, realized <laughs> that, that I was the cool dad. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, hey, like I said. To each their own. Everybody's got their own family paths to work around and and stuff when it comes to all this. But no, this has been a this is like I said, this has been a a nice, I think, synopsis of of your life and history and, and involvement in all this. And um, you know, I mean, there's already been some some good advice that you've given, and um, you know, whether or not, like I said, you 
have much more. I mean, I'll give you one one opportunity here to go ahead and, and share one last piece of advice here, and then we can we can go ahead and wrap this up and call this good because I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. Me too. <laughs> hey, I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, no, no. Uh, but you know, it's time to eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if if I had any advice, it would be actually it would be to two different aspects of people. There are those that are seeking a sponsor and those that are considering an apprentice. I think that that choice should be taken a whole lot more serious, you know, because, uh, you know, we, our sport, you know, it's only going to take one jackass, you know, to, to screw it all up for everybody, <laughs> you know, so we need to be careful and deliberate in the choices that we make of sponsors, if you're an apprentice or a prospective apprentice looking for someone to sponsor, you know, now we got the internet, we got cell phones. There's no, no long distance anymore. You know, you need to, you need to check out this person that you're considering to learn under, mm -hmm. you know, and as a potential sponsor, you need to take into account a lot of things, not just because they want it, I want a lot of things that I shouldn't have, you know. Uh, but uh, I just think that we we need to take that. I mean, America and Great Britain, you just go buy a permit and then go to the pet store and buy a bird. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have this. I consider the apprenticeship program a, a, a great thing for falconry. Because after all, falconry, I mean, you can read all the books you want to read. But really, it's really something that is passed on from one person to another, mm -hmm. technically, you know, and ultimately, it's a, it's something that is taught by somebody that's doing been doing it for a good while and been successful at it to to somebody who is just now wanting to get in on the ground level. And that person that you're considering to sponsor should be should fit a certain criteria. That you're looking for. I mean, I won't sponsor kids because you're sponsoring their parents. You know, you're going to be dependent upon their parents. And if the guy makes a C in math, you know, are they going to use falconry as a punishment? Mm -hmm. You know, they say they won't, you know. Uh, but, you know, and, you know, there's a place for that, sponsoring youngsters. Uh, but I prefer a middle-aged a person who's been married to the same person for a long time, if they're married, been working at the same job for a long time. I want somebody that's stable, you know, who's got a life that demonstrates that they're stable and that they'll stick with something. And then we want to make an agreement that if you get into this and you find that it's a lot harder than your fantasy was, that you'll do the right thing. Don't don't. Don't continue to imprison a bird and not fly it. Let it go and let your license lapse, you know. And and the sponsor, so the prospective sponsor, he needs to be prepared that if they are not fulfilling the minimum, uh, you know, requirements that you would have, don't let them go to the general level because those people that are just allowed to go up just on the basis of time. They can't wait to sponsor somebody because mm -hmm. that's the only way that they can be looked up to. Yeah. They can elevate themselves by sponsoring somebody. And, you know, falconry reproduces itself. Good falconers 
will produce good falconers and crappy falconers will produce crappy falconers. So I just, that's the very basic level is this, the decision to sponsor or not to sponsor or to pick this guy to be your sponsor or that guy to be your sponsor. So it's, it's, it's one of the most serious decisions or choices that you will make. Yeah. No, I, I, agree and i you know like i said we we have to make sure that you know reputable people are coming up and and everything else but um you're going to entrust them with yeah, our sport for sure you know so there should be criteria sure to be met not just anybody that wants it yeah no i agree agree wholeheartedly and speaking of important decisions i think the important decision now of what we're going to eat needs to be made. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, I have an opinion about that, yeah. too. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> I'm sure you do, bud. Well, like I said, I think this has been a great, a great talk. And, um, you know, I've enjoyed it. You know, I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. You know, it's uh, I will say you're definitely going to going to take the record so far as is the longest chat that I've had so far. But, uh, hey, you know, it's great stuff. I'm, I'm glad that you were willing to share it with the whole world. And um, let's uh, let's go ahead and get some to eat. Call it good, and we'll we'll talk some more. Hopefully, sometime soon. I guess you know. But anytime. Uh, yeah. Well, like I said, it's thanks. been a pleasure. Appreciate you, Gary. Thanks. Right. So that was the first part of this conversation that I had with Gary while I was doing some recordings down in Texas. And I should make mention of the fact too that Randy Watson was the one who contacted me about coming down and doing this episode with Gary and some other Falconers from down in his area. He's the one that sponsored this uh, particular group of episodes that are coming from his neck of the woods down in Texas. So thank you again, Randy, for having me down and for helping me get all these stories out to the falconry community. It's much appreciated. And the reason there's actually two parts to this episode is because we actually had a cancellation a day or two into recording, and we thought, well, you know, there's actually some other things, believe it or not, that Gary could have went a little bit into further detail on that he actually didn't mention in this first two and a half hours or so in regards to some of the roles that he played as far as getting some rules and regs and things like that changed in Texas and some other things. So I figured I would go ahead and just combine these two parts into one large episode here for you all, since, as I stated before, I kind of wanted to start things off with a bang with a new podcast and all that kind of good stuff. So also, that being said, I wanted to make mention as well of one of the usual sponsors of the podcast being Seth Roy from North Mountain Goshawks. And just wanted to say thanks again to Seth for continuing to support the podcast. And for all of you that are in the market for a new game hawk, I know many of you know we're getting close now to the breeding season. So if anyone wants to get on the list for a great new game hawk, particularly a parent-reared North American finish or Russian goshawk, hit them up northmountaingoshawks.com or northmountaingoshawks on Facebook or email at ostringer3 at gmail.com if you want to get on that list and have yourself a great new hunting partner for next season. And all that being said, I will go ahead and turn things over to this second part of this conversation with Gary Brewer. And thank you all for listening. Hope you're enjoying. And here we go. Kick it off. <laughs> well, I, like I said, thanks for coming back again today, Gary, because I know as we got to talking more, especially when we were having lunch yesterday and talking more kind of in the interim and everything, it became apparent that 
you know, there was a lot of stuff that we didn't cover. Even even in that two and a half hours, there were still some really cool stories right. and things that that people I think would be interested in in hearing. Like when I started hearing them, I was just like, well, hell, why didn't you know? Why didn't we get these covered yesterday? And and sometimes, you know, this is a situation where. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Who knows when I'm going to see you again? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, while I'm here and because we had time again today, it just made sense to go ahead and have you come back and share some of the just the stories and stuff that we didn't quite get to during that two and a half hours yesterday. Basically, the way I'm going to treat this is I'm just going to turn things over to you and let you share a couple of the stories that we were kind of reminded of when we were when me, you and uh, Randy were talking yesterday at lunch and stuff. And um, yeah, man, just we'll get a few of these, few more of these stories, uh, you know, chronicled and saved for the future. And uh, yeah, man, just go ahead and take yeah. it away. Well, of course, you know, forty five years. Yeah, it's a long you time know, to try to cover in a couple, two or three hours. Uh, a lot of things have happened in my falconry life, and uh, it's been really the driving, the driving force in my life. I, uh, you know, aside from my faith, uh, you know, falconry is right up there. You know, it's very, something I'm very passionate about. My family understands that, and you know, when I'm dead and gone, nobody's going to care that I was a good machinist or a good insurance adjuster or any of those things. But what, but what the people closest to me will, will remember is how much I love those birds and falconry, you know, and, uh, it was, uh, something that they'll, they'll attest to the fact that I talk about not much else, you know, and that no matter what, no matter what subject that they bring up, I can twist it into something to relate to falconry. You know, and uh, I don't, uh, you know, I I try not to be overbearing about it because that's that's what's in my mind a lot of the time. You know, uh, since I got into falconry, I, I've not been bored, not one time, you know, because you go to the dentist office and he goes, well, the dentist is running a little bit behind, so it's going to be a while. And I'm like, cool. You know, I go sit down in the in in the waiting room and it gives me an opportunity to think some problems that I want to solve or some issues that I want to address or I'm playing over and over in my head some chase that we recently had and could I have done anything to make it better, you know, and uh so I've just always got plenty of things to think about. I've always trying to make it better, you know, at least for for me, you know, and occasionally it works out to if I make something better for me, it makes it better for somebody else too. You know, that's just a side benefit. That's what falconry is all about. I mean, we should never, we should never just get complacent and say, well, okay, it is what it is and we'll just accept that. I mean, first of all, that wouldn't be American, you know, America, you know, like the Chinese invented gunpowder and we took that and came up with the nuclear bomb. You know, uh, that's just how America is. And that's, you know, the the British, you know, are known for falconry. But, you know, the Americans got a hold of it and they just took it to a whole nother level, you know. And it's just our nature as Americans. But uh, so, you know, a 4,000, supposedly 4,000-year-old 4, sport, I think it's older than that myself. But uh, 
4,000-year-old sport, it just continues to to evolve, you know, to be better and better. More birds, you know, we're flying birds these days that they didn't fly 4,000 years ago, I'm sure, you know. Uh, we're flying birds and chasing game that I doubt has ever been chased, you know. So uh, it's ever-changing, and that's one of the things that uh, – you know, you can't, you can't ever, you can't ever learn it all, you know? And so you can't ever go, I'm bored. I know everything, you know, sure. it's, it's just not going to happen mm-hmm. uh, because there's always somebody coming up with something, some kind of idea, you know, that gives it new life. You know, it's like an onion. You keep peeling that onion. There's always another layer. I got to be a general falconer and I, I when trapped those two females brought them back and I had that one female that took off after a squirrel and wasn't going to wasn't going to listen to me trying to stop it and all the while that I was trying to stop it and I was horrified that something bad was really going to happen uh I I couldn't help but watch what was going on and it was just spectacular and so at that time I realized you know where my life was about to change you know that I was, I was about to uh, uh, go down a trail that was really not a recommended trail, you know. And but that I didn't have any choice because uh, success is a whole lot better than failure. And uh, but uh, I thought that the Harris Hawk, you know, was the answer to my problem. You know, because she's the one that went after the squirrel the first. But what I hadn't contemplated was the fact that with the first two birds that I had flown in my first two years in the apprenticeship, uh, <clears throat> I avoided squirrels like the plague. I, I didn't fly them in places where they would uh, likely encounter one. So I don't know. That first red tail I had might have been a really good squirrel hawk if I just gave her half a chance. Uh but so I, you know, I started hunting squirrels with the with the Harris hawk. I thought that was the answer. And somewhere down the road, uh, I got this apprentice. We talked about him in our last session. You know, he's a deaf guy, and uh, he was going to fly uh, a red tail, and we we're going to try to see if that red tail would, if we couldn't coax it, you know, to go after squirrels. And uh, you know, a month later. Him and that red tail was just kicking my butt all all over the place, you know. Me and that Harris, so you know, I'm always I'm always about improving things and making things better. So I saw that the red tail might be a whole lot better choice, you know, in squirrel birds. So I went back to the red tail. Well, uh, a, a little later, I had another apprentice, and he had a. Uh, a, a nice big f- female red tail and he he lived out in the country like i do and, and really not too far from me and he called me up and said he thought he was ready to fly this bird free so i wanted to be there when he did it so i wanted to verify that that she, that i thought she was ready so i went over to his house he lived on some acreage there was a, a dry wash that went uh you know, that sometimes the creek would overflow and the water would go up into this dry wash. But from the top of the dry wash and all around it, it was all pasture. So, but in the dry wash, there was a lot of trees and 
underbrush and stuff. So we put the bird up on the edge of that dry wash because it had trees it could fly to from one to the other to see if we could get this bird to follow. Well, she moved about twice, and then she took off down into that dry wash and started chasing this big fox squirrel, and she caught it. Well, I was I was a lot scrawnier than my apprentice, so I got there first. I got down to the bottom of the wash where she had this fox squirrel pinned, and then he caught up with me. And his name was Todd, and uh, I I looked at Todd and I said, Todd, if you ever decide to do anything stupid like get rid of this bird, I hope my phone will be the first one to ring. <laughs> well, later on that year, uh, I took him to a THA meet, and he went out with a a group of long winger guys, you know, and the good ones. We got some good long wingers in this state. But he went out with them for a day, and he was thoroughly impressed. You know, he had all the earmarks of a long winger. You know, of course, he lived in East Texas. But, you know, he drove the uh, real expensive SUV with all the bells and whistles. You know, every hair was always in place. You know, his hair was never messed up. You know, he had the, he wore the sport coats and the turtlenecks. And, you know, I mean, he just had long winger written all over him. You know, not that every long winger is that, but... You know, if you've been around Falconry for a while, you you know, you there's a difference between the long wingers and the dirt hawkers, you know. So the dirt hawkers are the guys in the bib overalls and the rubber boots, the <laughs> ball caps, you know, and they come to the banquet dressed like that, you know, typically. But anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, when we were on our way back home from the meet, which is a six-hour drive from Abilene to where we live in East Texas, he expressed to me that he wanted to be a long winger. And I I talked to him for a long time about, you know, that that's a real difficult order, you know, in East Texas because the trees grow right up to the water puddles around here, you know, so it's very seldom. I mean, there's a few farm tanks out there, but a lot of them you can't see from the road. I mean, it's just, uh, it, was, it would just be tough to pull that off and uh but it didn't change his mind and so finally that little devil on my shoulder says you know offer to get him a falcon and swap it for that red tail <laughs> so i told him i said todd if you really want to fly a long wing i'll, I'll get you a long wing and we'll trade even steven for that red tail well everybody thought i was out of my head <laughs> you're going to trade a falcon for a red tail? <laughs> and I said, damn, it's not just any red tail. You know, I saw a lot of potential in this bird. So I put the word out that I was looking for a falcon. And some guy from Michigan called me, you know, because I had a buddy, uh, Bert Lossberg. He was a breeder. And he had moved up into Oklahoma City. And... uh you know, I had called him and told him if he knew anybody, you know, and uh, he put the word out. And it turns out that he had he had sold a bird to a guy in Michigan who had already had a goshawk that he had flown for a number of seasons. He was going through a divorce and he's going to have to get rid of one of them birds. And it wasn't going to be the goshawk and the, the falcon. He'd just gotten it and hadn't done anything with it. So I called the guy. And uh, 
he agreed that if if I would pay all the expenses to get this bird down to Texas, that he'd just give it to me. So, deal, you know. But Todd has not gotten his general permit. He's still going to have to go through, you know, half a year. So he couldn't, we couldn't make the trade then. So now I'm stuck with this falcon. I got to fly it, you know. So I had to throw up a pigeon coop. And uh, since I didn't have a, a, you know, a flock of pigeons that that in my backyard on Friday and Saturday nights, me and another buddy, we'd go climbing all, all over all these old buildings in these little old towns. And we was catching pigeons with a flashlight and a landing net. (laughs) <laughs> and so I'd bring home a big bag full of chick- pigeons, and then through the week, of course, we'd use them. Well, when the bird missed them, they'd just wind up back where we got them. So we just had us a route, like a milk route. We'd go around and catch these pigeons. So finally the day come that he had his general permit, and we could make this deal. I got the red tail, and he got the falcon. Well, he flew it for a year, didn't accomplish anything with it. He gave it to another guy in East Texas that flew it for a year, didn't accomplish anything with it, who gave it to a guy up in Fort Worth area who flew it for a year and lost it. (laughs) Meanwhile, that red tail (laughs) became a legend. I mean, she was an awesome bird. And a lot of the older falconers around here that knew me during that time, they, they, they knew and respected that bird. So I ask you, who got the better end of that deal? You know, I mean, it wasn't so foolish is what people thought because I, I wound up with a really great bird and she eventually was released uh, about the time she was 10 years old, released right there onto the same pole that she was trapped off of. So I presume that she went out there and found her a mate and got those genes into the next generation and that there's some really good red tails out there with her DNA flying around. Yeah. So it's all in the eye of the beholder, you know, what a good deal is and what isn't. But the story that I want to hear next is this, uh, I keep hearing this over and over again, the story about this alligator and, uh, you know, (laughs) and, and this whole fiasco that I, that I, (laughs) that I heard you had to deal with this, this one particular incident. Go ahead and tell that story real quick. Yeah. I was, I was flying a Harris Hawk. So this had to have been at least 35 years ago. And, you know, I never knew we had any alligators around here. Apparently, there had been alligators here, but they killed them all out. But uh, I guess it was probably around 35, between 35 and 40 years ago. I had uh, taken a, a Harris hog that, that I had brought back after the the best one that I had that got me on to squirrels. I went through about three Harris's after that that had no interest in squirrels. These are passage birds. And uh, so, but I had a, I had one that went after a duck and caught it. I mean, it wasn't what I was trying to do, but it happened just like that. And so I thought, okay, well, let's see how, how our luck on ducks will be. So, you know, out there where this all happened years and years and years ago when I was a little bitty boy, there was a water treatment plant that was out there. It's uh, called Black Fork Creek in north side of Tyler, Texas. And uh, 
of course, at some time in the past, they abandoned it. But, you know, it's the old style water treatment plant where they had all these natural sloughs that they dug. Then they would run all the water out there to, to let them settle, you know, let the junk in it settle. And when they abandoned uh, that water treatment plant, all the buildings are gone. It's just what's all that's left is these sloughs. And Black Fork Creek runs through there. And some beavers got in there, and they built, they dammed it up and caused a lot of the water to back up. So all those settling sloughs were all filled with water all the way up to the top. But there'd be like a sandbar between them. Uh, you know, and the, of course, you know, it was a water treatment plant with sewage and all that. So, the, you know, the plant life there was just tremendously thick. <laughs> But but the ducks would go in there and settle down. So, you know, you couldn't you couldn't walk on the sandbars because the brush was so thick. So I got me some chest waders, and it was a lot quieter if I could get in the water and walk. Then you could sneak, you know. And so I had this one of these Harris hawks with me that day. She was up uh, in the plant growth over overlooking me. And I'm going down in the water. I'm going down in this, uh, settling, this settling slough. And at the end of the settling slough, there was a, a row of brush. And then on the other side of that, there was a, a beach, a sand beach where the Black Fork Creek came in there and there was a bend and the water was kind of deep there. So the bird took off and she flew over that uh, row of brush at the end of that. Uh, slew that I was walking in and then I heard I, I didn't see it I just heard the the duck was making all kinds of racket and there was wing beating and water splashing and I knew she had a duck so as fast as I could go in the water I got there and I made my crush my way through that brush line onto this beach and there was about 20 foot of sand between between me and where the bird, the Harris and the duck were fighting. And, you know, they were both covered in mud and that duck was just beating the crap out of her. So I needed to get there and to help her. And so I took about two big strides and the water behind them boiled. And this massive alligator (laughs) came up out of the water and landed on top of them sideways with his mouth open and snapped them up, both of them. And I just froze in my tracks. And then he, after he chomped them a couple of times, he backed into the water, and then he just settled down under the beneath the surface of the water with nothing but bubbles. And I just, I didn't believe what I just saw. You know, a, a freaking alligator. You know, and this is a place where when I was a kid, I used to swim in that creek, you know, and uh, and so I thought, you know, and I never saw him again. I, you know, there was just a few feathers floating, you know, on the surface of the water. And so I thought, you know, Austin is not going to believe this. You know, I'm going to follow a report that I lost a bird to an alligator, you know, that, you know, and it got the duck and the bird. So I went and I started filling out the report, the 3186A, about the loss of this bird. And I thought, they're not going to believe this story. 
So I got my little Instamatic camera, and I went back out there, and I sat above that bend in the creek for hours until that alligator finally showed itself, and I took a picture of it. I still have a picture, that picture of that alligator. And uh, I sent that to, to, to George Adams, and he was the guy over permits in uh, Austin. And I, I attached a letter to the 3186A. I said, you know, I didn't figure you would believe this, so I've attached a picture. And he wrote me back, and he said, man, nobody's going to make up a story like that. <laughs> they make up something that would, you know, sound reasonable. But uh, anyway, that – and I I just figured, you know, I wasn't a, a falconer who was – well known or anything at that time so i just figured this must happen in louisiana all the time or south florida but i've never heard of anybody else uh having their birds snapped up by an alligator uh and especially here where i live now we're finding alligators everywhere the alligators have just exploded in their populations around here i'm scared to uh, when I had my dog, I was, it always made me nervous because he, he liked to hunt the edge of the water and, uh, in Bellwood Lake. And there's alligators in Bellwood Lake. I've seen them, you know. So alligators starting to be a problem. I can't believe that somebody in Louisiana hasn't had a bird snapped up by an alligator as many as they got down there. Oh, I'm sure it's probably happened. We just hadn't heard about it or something. Surely. Yeah. yeah. First of all, that was, a crazy story. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, obviously, in southern Indiana, that's not something we're probably going to run into. If uh, if if the first thing that, that we ran into with, was like an alligator or something like that, the first thing I'd have to ask is, okay, which ass decided to, to release their pet alligator and <laughs> that they raised in their bathtub or something? I don't in know the creek, where they but, came from. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, they're everywhere now. Yeah. Well, I can I can understand that here, but man, I, I wouldn't, I would, yeah, that would be nuts in, in uh, i was pretty freaked out yeah i bet but well i mean the next topic then i want to ask you about and and the next thing i want you to talk a little bit about then is um you know we brushed on quite a bit we brush on you know using dogs and falconry and and things like that and um you know i talk a little bit more about your thoughts on you know the dogs that you used or you know what what breed has kind of um piqued your interest over the years and and things like that if you because we i don't well, we may have brushed on it some the other day but uh no. but i don't we know talked we talked a little bit about it but yeah. we didn't talk about the dog right right <laughs> you know yeah. uh of course with with squirrel hawking you know a dog is not a necessity it's a luxury mm -hmm. but damn what a luxury mm -hmm. they are you know, because when you're hunting the squirrels uh, in the forest, you know, uh, in some of the forests, like the ones we you hunt around here, you know, that squirrel, if it hits the ground and it runs, you know, 30 feet, you've lost sight of it. You know, it disappears. And then when you, you finally uh, get to where you lost sight of it, you're looking around, there's at least 100 places it could be, you know. And uh, so, you know, what the dog does and, you know, I, man, I ran into a guy up in, uh, I think it was Indiana. We were at a NAFA meet. It was, the NAFA meet was in Amarillo, but this guy, I think, was from Indiana. So his, his sponsor wasn't able to make the meet and he wanted, he told him to look me up and that, 
to get me to go out with him and give him my thoughts, you know. Well, this guy had a uh, uh, some kind of a retriever, you know, like a golden retriever. And this dog was bigger than me, you know. I mean, this dog weighed over 100 pounds. And he's out there hunting rabbits with it, you know. And it's the family dog, right? A lot of people want to try to incorporate the family dog into their falconry. And it's just rarely ever a good idea. Okay, first of all, that dog cannot pursue the quarry any further than he could because they're both big, you know. So if you're going to use a dog in falconry for rabbits or squirrels, uh, of course, I'm coming from a squirrel background, but, but rabbits or squirrels, the dog needs to be sized as close to the size of the quarry as possible. That way, there's not any place they can go that the dog can't go, right? I mean, just they get 100% benefit from the, the use of the dog. So, uh, you know, I I went up to trap with Kenny and Virgo, uh, Ridge Trap, just for fun. You know, I had a foster apprentice from Mississippi that seemed to be having a problem trapping a female where he lived. So we just planned to make a trip up to northwest Illinois and Ridge Trap with Kenny. And uh, we wound up coming back with a nice female. With it. But while I was there... A guy that had uh, I had met at a Bloomington Normal meet when I was invited to speak at the Great Lakes. Uh, he was there, and he ran uh, Jack Russell Terriers. I don't know whatever happened to him. I've lost touch with him. But anyway, he took me out to watch his dogs work, and I'd always ran Brittany's just because that was the only breed of dog that my Harris would tolerate. And... Uh, after I watched his dog's work, he we were on our way back to the hotel, and he said, well, how would you like to have a dog, dog like that? And I said, well, what do you get him? I wasn't wanting to put in an order for a dog, you know, but I didn't want to insult the guy either. So I said, well, what do you, what do you get him, Lake? And he goes, well, I get 400 for the males and 300 for the females. And I thought I had the perfect answer. I said, well, if I had $400 that I could let go of, I'd love to have one. <laughs> and we left it at that. Two years passed. I had met Kenny at that meet as well, Kenny and Virgo. Old-time red tailer. He's since passed on, but uh, he, had, he had invited me up to his place to ridge trap. So we went up there. Lake found out that I was going to be in northwest Illinois, which is just one state over, you know, from, he says, would you mind if I come? sit in the blind with you. And I said, uh, sure, that'd be great. So we got, we drove Saturday and Sunday, got up there Sunday night and Tuesday morning, Lake arrived. And uh, I went out there to meet him in the front yard and he gets out of his truck and he turns around and he's got in the palm of his hand, he's got this little six week old male Jack Russell puppy, slick coat, black and white adorable dog but you know my my first impression was i was a little bit put off because i didn't ask for this dog <laughs> you know and uh so i thought i, I saw this problem I, I told him i said lake i don't have four hundred dollars and he says you got a dollar don't you i said well, yeah i got a dollar and he goes it's bad luck to give away a dog give me that dollar and he handed me the dog so now i'm stuck with it 
you know. <laughs> and I got a whole week of trying to keep this dog from crapping or pissing on Miss Invergo's floor, you know, because <laughs> she's got a whole house full of guys laying everywhere sleeping. And uh, so I kept him in my shirt, you know, where he couldn't get into any trouble. Eventually, as the week progressed, you know, he won me over. And I decided that, you know, I had a 24-hour drive to get home. And somewhere in that 24 hours, I, I made a mind uh, that, you know, I was going to make this the best damn hawking dog the world had ever seen. <laughs> you know, I was going to I was going to put it, pour everything into it. And I did. And uh, he was a fantastic dog. Sixteen of the best years of my falconry life were spent with that dog. And he lived to go hawking. Uh, I trained him very well. I had trained several dogs prior to that. I'd already learned from a lot of mistakes, things that you want to instill. And, you know, later on, it'd be too late to do it, you know, so get it all in early. And I mean, he was a, anybody that ever knew him was more impressed with him than they were with the birds. You know, he was just a, an exceptional dog. And he hunted the day before he died. He he was 16 years old when he died for a great for a Jack Russell Terrier. That's like 120, you know, because they're usually dead by the time they're five, <laughs> chasing cars and stuff. You know, they're just they're just they get into a lot of trouble if they don't have a job. You know, well he had a job, and uh, and he did it very well. He got hit by a lot of big red tails in his life. But he just took it as all in a day's work. If you want to go, that's a risk you got to take, you know. And uh, I, I, I feel for anybody that never got to see him work because he was a phenomenon. So uh, and uh, I you know, told you all that to, to say that, you know, a, a dog, a well-trained dog, and the the most important aspect of training a squirrel hawking dog, I mean, you don't have to teach a, a Jack Russell or a Feist or, or any of those type of dogs. You don't have to teach them how to, you don't have to teach them to hunt. And that's in their blood, you know. You have to get control of them. And see, that means that as the dog handler, you got to be on your toes all the time. You got to be watching that dog because if, if he... If he gets stimulated by something and he breaks, they become deaf. They can't hear you. You know, you have no control. So you have to, you have to be watching that dog. And when them ears pop up and that, and that nose wrinkles and he's staring intently in a direction, that's the time to call his name, get his attention and get control of him because you don't want him running on autopilot, you know, and, uh, you know, you've you've got to teach the dog the ring of respect, you know, where they're not permitted to run in on the bird that's on the ground with a kill. You don't that's that's you know, it'll get to the point where any given bird will come to trust the dog that that knows how to behave. You know, a dog that respects it, they'll they'll accept the dog to the point where the dog could go in there and lick, you know, the the quarry that the bird is standing on, and there not be a, a big problem. But the next bird you take on may not have learned that, and it's it and it's almost impossible to untrain the dog. 
to to be able to go in there. So you teach that dog the ring of respect from the get-go, and you maintain it forever. The dog is not allowed to run in on the bird on the ground. And you teach, you teach them that with the, with, during the lure training and early, early training. You know, when the bird is on the ground on the lure and you allow the dog to approach and stop the dog when the bird burrs up, you know, and then wait until the bird starts to lose interest in the dog and you let the dog come in a little closer, but never closer than four feet away from the bird. So, but I, the dogs are, very valuable and they're a lot of company i mean he was my best hawking friend you know i mean when nobody else felt like going he wasn't going to be left behind you know he loved it and uh you know the birds get to where they key off the dog you know if the dog is well behaved and controllable uh they'll learn to read the dog and the dog learns to read the bird i mean the dog will hear bells and it'll stop and look at the bird and if and the dog learns to tell the difference between a bird just moving up and a bird that thinks it saw something they know the difference and when they when they see a flight of interest they rip towards the bird and when the bird lands they just start working underneath them you know, looking for whatever it was. And uh, and the birds learn to watch that dog. They can tell when that dog is on hot scent. And when they, when they pick up on that, they'll move over and, and hunt over the dog. So, uh, and another good thing about it is, of course, he was black and white. He was, he was a little guy, but he was black and white, very visible in the woods. If I didn't know where the bird was, all I had to do was find him, and the bird was going to be somewhere close by over him, you know. So, and sometimes, uh, uh, in squirrel hawking, now this is, this is a, one of my pet peeves, okay, is that, you know, squirrel hawking is way different from rabbit hawking or any other kind of hawking. If a, if a bird catches a squirrel up in the canopy and she's got total control, of it, she's either killed it, or she's got it by the back of the head and the and the, the the back of the shoulders. Total control. She's not going to come crashing down to the ground. She's going to look around and find a really nice, quiet place that she can sit down and not be worried about being bushwhacked. And she's going to do what I call sailing. And I have people go. Does she always carry like that? Uh, that's very offensive. Squirrel hawks don't carry. Carrying would be as if when I have seen birds that did carry, but it's because they were mishandled on a kill. But if if it's, if the bird is carrying, when you catch up with the bird, it's going to go again. But if the bird stays put, it was simply a matter of she didn't have to fall out of the tree like a sack of beans and hit the ground. She would she could glide over and land near a bush and go up under the bush because when they catch something, they instinctively know that they're subject to being bushwhacked by either another bird of prey or, uh, you know, some kind of a canine predator or, you know, any kind of predator on land or air of which, you know, you can typically fall into that category. You know, when she's in that, that state of self-preservation where she has to decide for herself that it's safe 
to go down and turn her back on the world and start to pick at it. And uh, so anyway, uh, there's been times when a bird sailed with a with a squirrel that she caught and killed up in the tree, and I didn't know where she was. And I could sit the dog down, trap her sit, you know, and I'd sit and w- I'd watch him, and he'd, you know, panting with his tongue, hanging out the side of his mouth, looking around. Then all of a sudden, she closed his mouth. His ears would pop up, and his nose would start to wrinkle, and he would stare. And then all I had to say was, where's the bird? And he'd take off. He'd be poking his head under all these bushes with that little tail, that little four-inch Jack Russell tail, just just a brrrr, you know, just a going. And then he'd poke his nose under one bush, one particular bush, and that, that tail would just go brrrr, and it would stop. That's where the bird was. So I called him my dog telemetry. You know, I didn't, I never used telemetry on red tails up until about 10 years ago. So for the first 35 years of my falconry, I never used telemetry. I didn't need it. You know, I had often seen a lot of times, and I don't want to offend anybody, but uh, some people get to where they use the telemetry as a substitute for discipline and management. You know, the last thing I want to hear when I go out with somebody is, well, she's a little high, but I got the telemetry on her. (laughs) That's going to be a long day, you know. So uh, in my apprentices, I typically will not allow them to use telemetry and, you know, during their apprenticeship because I want them to learn how to manage their birds and not have to use telemetry. But as, you know, when my health has deteriorated, uh, of course, you know, I'm legally blind now and I'm, it's getting worse by the week. And uh, that was the reason why initially I got some telemetry. But uh, the, the telemetry that I use is very basic. It's a, an old trapper, a tracker classic two, two channel pre-programmed with a, a row of LED lights because I can't see the little needle. You know, uh, but it's all you need with a red tail. You know, just, uh, red tails don't typically just go to the next county. You know, they're, they're going to be somewhere close by. And the, the biggest thing that loses red tails is panic. You know, if you don't know where the bird is, you know, stay where you are and listen, you know, because if you start chasing the crows, you know, they're, calling over somewhere and you think they're they're harassing your bird she must be over there she must be over here you know when you're when you're scared that you don't know where the bird is everything sounds like a bell you know birds calling sounds like bells oh is that her you know so panic is uh is the thing that loses birds you start running around crazy looking for them uh you know it might not end well yeah, and you gotta you gotta learn how to read some of the environmental factors for sure, and and um, yeah, that that's always been the the classic form of telemetry, you know, before that was ever invented. But I know the one other thing too, and there's a few other things that we're probably gonna end up discussing, or you're gonna you know talk about or whatever. But the other thing that we didn't really get much of a chance to touch on the other day, whenever we recorded last, also was your role, and um, I know you had a couple of stories about. Or one particular story about your um, your role in helping to to get some of the laws changed and stuff with the uh, you know the the rules and regulations here in, in Texas and stuff too. 
I mean, yeah. you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's two things that, that I was involved in getting straightened out in the state. One was the car trapping with the PC. You know, if you look in the Texas regulations, it's illegal to hunt uh, utilizing an automobile and public roads. And uh, that wasn't so much the problem as it was the definition of hunting, you know. And one of the definitions of hunting was trapping or attempted trapping. And I can assure you that when they when they wrote that law, nobody was thinking about falconry, you know. And I and I I could tell that they had made some kind of a concession with somebody, because there was an exception made in that law concerning trapping or attempted trapping for herpetologist people, you know, snake people. And uh, so I knew it, it wasn't chiseled in stone, really, you know, but. Something was going to have to happen because you get out there and get pulled over, BC trapping, you know, because you're you're acting weird. You're sitting on the side of the road with binoculars looking at something, you know, and uh, the cops or the uh, general public drives by and sees two or three men sitting in a car with binoculars staring at something. Uh, they're going to call the law, you know, and the law comes out and there you are. And uh, of course, uh, back in that time, most of your game wardens didn't have a clue about falconry, you know. Uh, and so you present them with all kinds of state and federal permits. And the vast majority of the time, they would just assume that you were permitted to do that because all the permits you had and, uh, and all the equipment, you know, you, you couldn't be lying or you wouldn't be carrying around, you know, gerbils and, you know, traps and weird stuff like that. So typically they'd let you go. But one year, a guy got sighted uh, down in South Texas trapping Harris Hawks, and he just paid his fine. Well, you know, in the part of uh, the world where I live, there's no other way really to get a red tail, a passage red tail, other than B.C. trapping or Balshatri, if you don't know what B.C. stands from. Uh, because you take the trap and you go look for a bird and you serve the trap to the bird from the car. So you're on a public roadway and it's a trap, you know, so uh Technically, if you and that's the way the laws are interpreted, you know, it doesn't matter that they weren't thinking about falconry when they wrote the law. If you get if you get stopped, it's the letter of the law that they're going to go by. So, you know, obviously what we were doing was illegal. And at the state meet one year, they they brought this up, uh, the the. Uh, the officers committee brought this up at our business meeting and said, you know, we need a test case because we, we don't know. We don't know if we're if we're doing something illegal or whether we're not doing something illegal, because a lot of people get stopped and turned loose. And then we had a guy get stopped and he got busted. So so if anybody in this club gets uh, cited for B.C. trapping, Call the president of the club right away. First thing, call them, you know, 
And uh, we had a falconry advisory board, which is the buffer between the, the falconry community and the powers that be. You know, so that we didn't have jackasses calling down there and causing a problem for everybody else, you know, by being disrespectful. Uh, typically, veterans don't have a problem. They understand the chain of command and authority. And, you know, we can typically deal uh, with figures of authority a lot better than people who've never had to uh, live a disciplined life. So, anyway, I called the club and told them I'd been busted, you know. I wasn't really the one trapping. I was a passenger in the car. It was a young man. Uh, he was 16 years old. He just got his driver's license and borrowed his grandma's car. Just got his falconry permit and uh, called and asked me if I would, uh, you know, guide him around through my trapping spots. So I did. Meanwhile, we picked up another buddy of mine who lived in that route, just, you know, come along for the fun of it, trapping. Who doesn't like to trap, you know? So uh, we were coming back down from Paris, Texas, near a town, a little bitty tiny dinky town called Cooper, Texas. And we had served the trap, sitting on the side of the road with the binoculars, looking at it, and just past the trap was a county road that came in from the right and I saw a game warden truck pull up to the stop sign and I thought oh crap so then he turned left going down towards where we were so I knew we were fixing to get you know shook down so and he was a young guy I hadn't been out of game warden school for very long I'm sure it was on a Saturday for the so the office was closed you know, and really, typically, I mean, uh, he he didn't have a he had a little bit of a difficult time believing the story that we're trying to trap that bird up there, you know. But then we finally convinced him of that. And then he didn't know whether what we were doing was legal or not. You know, so he led us down to a Dairy Queen. And we sat there and waited for a couple of hours for him to get back. And uh, he said he'd, he'd go to the office and do some research, and he'd get back with us for us to wait there for him. So we did, being the law-abiding citizens that we are. And uh, he'd come back in a couple hours. He said, I got good news. I got bad news. And I said, well, uh, let's have the bad news first. He says, well, I'm going to have to cite somebody. And I said, and what's the good news? He says, I'm only going to write one ticket so you all decide who gets it. You know, so I had uh, I'd been around for a lot longer than the other two guys that were in the car. So I I knew a lot of people in uh, in the capital, uh, Austin, in the in the bureaucracy that you know governed our sport, and so I I elected to take the ticket myself, and so then I got a call from uh, an anonymous person that I can't mention. Uh, their names, but they called me and told me that to when I go to court, plead innocent, and if I'm found guilty, to appeal the the case. So eventually, my court date came up, and I had to go to Cooper, Texas, which was you know an hour and a half drive from where I actually live. And so I took a day off of work and I went to my court trial. Well, the the, the usual judge that would handle this was up in Wyoming trout fishing. And a local ambulance chaser was sitting in for him. 
And uh, so, uh, and I say that because it, it kind of, I got the impression that the judge, you know, had a somewhat of a bone to pick with law enforcement. And uh, so, you know, I felt like from the beginning he was in my corner, you know. And uh, I pled my case on precedent. Uh, in other words, that I'd been pulled over many times and uh, been checked out and released. You know, and hadn't this was the first time I'd ever been cited in all the years I've been doing this. And uh, in fact, and I brought out my book and I flipped over to a chapter that had some pictures in it of trapping with the B.C. and uh, on the roadside. And I showed the judge that picture, and uh, I said, you know, this book is in the Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, Library in Austin. You know, nobody's ever said anything to me about it before. And so I, I rested my case, and the game warden stood up, and he opened up the big book of regulations and said, but the regulations say, and he read it, and I mean— he, he was dead right. I mean, he was, uh, you know, by that, by what was written in the regulations, I was guilty, you know. So the judge uh, put us out in the hallway and he went back into his chamber to deliberate. And after about 15 minutes, he called us in and we sat down and he determined that I was guilty as charged. And he waged a $5 fine. And the game warden objected, and the, the judge asked him what was his objection. He says, because the minimum fine is 25 bucks. And uh, so the judge changed his ruling to $25 fine. And then I stood up and said, I would like to appeal this case. And the judge said, son, it's going to cost you $280 to appeal this $25 fine. Is that what you want to do? I said, yes, sir. So, uh, so I went. And he told me to go down to the window, pay my fine, pay the fee for the uh, appeal, fill out the paperwork. Well, now I was going to have to go before a panel. Uh, my next trial would be f before a panel of judges, and uh, so and it was about probably two or three months down the road before my trial came up again, and so I called. I called the proper people and told them what had happened. I'd been found guilty and that I appealed it, you know. So uh, I was told to stand down and that, that they'd get back with me. So three days before the trial came up, I got a call. And they said, there's a, there's a memo going out to every game warden's office in the state tomorrow morning that uh, you guys can use your cars. As long as you do it, as long as you observe all traffic laws and do it in a safe manner. And this will be printed on the face of your permits from this day forward. So you take, we're going to fax you a copy of that memo. You take it, you take it to court with you and they'll drop the charges. And I said, great. So, you know, I lost the $25, but I got the $280 back for the appeal when they dropped the case. And I, I considered it money well spent. <laughs> and the other the other law was, uh, you know, when I first got into falconry, everybody had to abide by the state gun laws, you know, gun hunting laws. 
you know so that means that you had to you had to observe the designated seasons the gun seasons you know well unfortunately the birds can't read you know so when when they're up there and they're loose and they see something that's that's on their menu and they don't they don't think about the fact that it may be out of season you know they're just going to go for it you know and then uh as to to be a law abiding falconer if they kill something that's out of season you just have to leave it laying on the ground you just have to abandon it for the possums and the coons and the you know vultures you know the scavengers so you know, I mean, it just made it very difficult. And Texas at that time had a split squirrel season where you had two seasons and then they were separated in the middle. And, you know, it was all based around their typical breeding season type stuff. So, uh, you know, I I had uh, met the state biologist, the the club had him up one year to uh, to give a speech, and uh, I, I was able to have the opportunity to take him out squirrel hawking when he while he was there, and it was a great day. Everything stars all lined up, and it was just a fantastic hunt. He got to see even in Abilene, Texas, he got to see some some good squirrel hawking, and uh, so uh, when I mounted this campaign you know every few years they take another look at the regulations you know and they give the public the opportunity to express any needs or desires or complaints you know that they have they have these public forums all over the state and uh, of course to keep the tree huggers from filibustering they have to limit everybody to three minutes and the way they do that or at least the forum that I went to was in Austin at the main office. Behind the Parks and Wildlife Board of Directors, there's a traffic light mounted on the wall. And then in front of the Board of Directors, there's a podium with a microphone. And when the green light comes on, that that means that the microphone is hot. You can begin speaking what you came to say. And then when the yellow light comes on, that's telling you, there's one minute left. And when the red light comes on, they kill the microphone, you know, just to keep people from, you know, taking advantage of it. Well, I wrote a speech, you know, and, and anytime you want to change or try to change a, a gun season or a, a hunting season that involves the wildlife, you know, your argument should be directed towards impact. Because that's, that's the way the biologists think. What kind of an impact will this request have on the wild population? Well, when I was a kid, you know, squirrels, you know, that was, that was a big game. I mean, everybody hunted squirrels. You know, it was, it was like a popular sport. But these days, it's all white-tailed deer and turkey and largemouth baths you know it's all the big stuff the trophy stuff you know and squirrels there's just not that many people anymore that hunt them you know and uh so you know i had that going for me but my problem was is i wanted the season to be extended to at least to, to, to mid-march or late march you know that's all i was asking for and uh you know, because that's typically when we put our birds up for the molt. I usually hunt right up till April, 
And, uh, and then when it gets to the point to where, you know, you got to fight the mosquitoes and the wasps and the snakes and all that, it's time to, it's time to shut her down for the year. So I wrote this speech that I could not get it below nine minutes. So I got two other falconers who were also squirrel hawkers. I got two other falconers to go down there with me and everybody memorized three minutes. We signed up in order. And then we presented our case to the to the board of the Texas Parks and Wildlife. And the biologist was there and uh he heard he heard the speech and uh he met me in the lobby and shook my hand and said, You know, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. He said it may take us a year, but you know, it, it's gonna happen. But it wasn't but about oh uh, Two or three months after that, I got a call. And the call, the caller told me that what they had wound up deciding is that since the birds began molting in April, you know, sometime in April, and we put them up and we don't hunt them through the molt, that really, actually, it was self-regulated, you know, because we put the birds up. So why, why would you even have to have a law if this thing was self-regulated if you didn't if you didn't hunt them during the spring and summer there's no point in having a regulation and as far as the bag limits were concerned uh you know i told them the the best i ever did on squirrels was five squirrels in one hunt well you know when i was a kid we used to go out there we'd kill 25 30 squirrels you know one hunt and uh you know, with the uh, 14 shotguns and 22 rifles, you know, and dogs. So, uh, you know, and, and, you know, typical, a typical squirrel hunt is one kill. Uh, a really, a good squirrel hunt is the two kills and uh, rarely three kills. And, uh, but, you know, above that, it's just very highly unusual, you know, so. Uh, it's not like we're going out there and slaughtering wildlife. If we wanted to do that, we'd just get us a shotgun, you know, be, be a lot easier. Uh, not only that, uh, is that they were impressed with the, uh, two other statements that I made in that speech. One was that there would be more squirrels killed crossing the street in one small Texas town than all the squirrel hawkers in Texas would take during that additional two months I was asking for. You know, and then uh, also they, the I got the board to laugh when I said that the 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 hawks couldn't read in regards to the seasons. You know, I said the bird can't read, and uh, they thought that was clever. So uh, what I wound up getting was no close season, no bag limit for squirrel take by falconry in in the state, which was way more than I was asking for. I was just elated, you know. Look, if you know if you if you approach people with respect and and with sense, not just because you want it, you know. I mean, if you can justify what you need to I mean, people are uh, prone to do the right thing. I believe that most people in in the bureaucracy are just good normal people. They have a job to do. Just like the game warden that busted me for trapping from the car. I mean, he was right. I mean, he was doing his job. You know what I mean? He and I uh, were on very friendly terms before it was all over with. And I, uh, 
I have I harbor no no resentment towards him. You know, I'm, it's not like the law and the falconry community are enemies that they're at odds with one another. the 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 law protects what we hunt. You know, and so I mean, they we're all on the same team. That's the way I see it. And if you approach it in that in that light, not as at enmity with each other, but we're both we're both interested in the same thing. We're both interested in the conservation and the preservation of the game that we love. You know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and as long as nobody loses complete and total sight of that, and everybody ends up winning for sure. But. Um, I know we've got like a whole notebook worth of stuff, but I mean, I think that pretty well covers it. I mean, like those are the main things that I wanted to to touch base on again. And I mean, heck, we've already got a whole other hour of uh, of good stuff. And and I knew that those were those to me at least were were some cool stories and some cool experiences that that I thought would be important to share. Mainly because, well. Like the one that you just shared, for example, it's a it's a prime example of how something that at least on the surface can seem negative can lead to ultimately something being really positive. And, yeah. you know, not every not every experience like that has to turn out bad in the end, right. you know, and sometimes you can facilitate good things happening by some initial inconvenience. It causes them to relook at yeah something that maybe. You know, uh, one other comment I want to make about the squirrel season. Mm -hmm. Three other states contacted me and used that material that I had put together to get the seasons in their states extended. Now, they didn't get they didn't get what I got. You know, they didn't get no close season, no bag limit. Uh, but they did get an extended season using that material, that, mm -hmm. that speech. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I know that. Our season in Indiana, I think it starts like somewhere around like mid-August, like August 15th or something. And it actually ends in mid-February. And mm -hmm. I know personally, I would really love to see it go to like end of March, personally. Right. But, you know, there's always baby steps involved with a lot of it. And I mean, who knows? I don't know when and if any of that stuff comes up for revisiting and things like that. But I mean, you you... Never, and you can't ever get anything changed if you don't ask. Exactly. You know, and so. You know, and I'll say one thing, too. I want to put the kudos out there for the Texas Hawking Association. Uh, because, you know, after this sting thing that happened back in the early 80s, uh, there was a lot of tension between falconry and law enforcement, you know, the bureaucracy. Um. You know, and the Texas Hawking Association or your state club, wherever you're at, you know, you need to support your state club because uh, the state, uh, the Texas state club uh, spent a lot of effort over the years that followed that in trying to mend the relationships and strengthen the relationship between the, the, the bureaucracy, the ones that, you know, govern everything. And our club, you know, and through all that, the bureaucracy came to understand that we weren't just a bunch of kooks that wanted a cool pet, you know, and uh, that we were serious people and that we were committed to a, uh, a very difficult, ancient practice, you know, and that we, we were serious people, 
You know, everything from, I mean, in falconry, it's, you, you got everything from garbage men to, you know, powerful lawyers and politicians, you know, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is a falconer. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so, you know, but you know, you can, you can be buddies with somebody for years in falconry and have a high degree of respect for them and not even know what they do for a living. You know, because when we're together, it's all about the birds, you know, and the and the hunt. And so uh, people of all walks of life, you know, I was uh, in the last years of my professional life, I was a roofing contractor, which is like two steps above riding the back of a garbage truck, you know. Uh, but, you know, the guys I rubbed elbows with and hunted with and who were my friends were, you know, surgeons and lawyers and, you know, all kinds of walks of life, you know, because in falconry, you know, you're we're no respecter of persons. We're respecters of practice, you know. We all love the same thing. You know, we, we fly different birds and we fly different quarry. You know, but in the end, we all have that same passion, you know, that we share amongst one another. My kids grew up around these grown men, you know, that get all excited about a chase, you know, and a, a, a kill. And then you got four or five grown men from all walks of life standing around with their eyes real big and telling what they saw from where they were standing, you know. And uh, it's just a, it's just a marvelous thing that really people that that are not involved in it really can't really understand it you know only a practitioner can really get a grip on why they do it you know i've had people go oh what what's in it for you what do you what do you get out of it you know <laughs> shoot you know i mean i can't explain that to you you got to experience it you know words can't do it mm-hmm. you know you have to live it then you will understand and I also noticed that a lot of people, um, they first get introduced in some way, a movie or a magazine article or, you know, some kind of a public exhibition thing. Books. Yeah, whatever. And uh, and they get all interested in it and they think it's all fascinating and they, they think they want to do it. But then when they get to the down to the brass tacks of what really is involved – you know, it's not it's not a hobby. You, if you know a practicing falconer, it's not his hobby. You know, it's way more than that. It's his life. You know, it's part of his life. It's who he is. You know, it shapes him and he shapes his family. And and falconry has a, a big part in that. It's a it's a teaching uh, opportunity to your kids that death is a fact of life. In order for there to be life, there's first got to be death. You know, and, uh, you know, life feeds on life, you know, and that's a reality that most kids think that, you know, meat grows on trees and wrapped in cellophane, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, they don't, they don't, they've never had to go out to the chicken coop and wring a neck, you know, and pluck a chicken. Uh, but falconry gives you that opportunity uh, to have a teaching moment with your children. They grow up with a healthy understanding of the realities of life and death you know we all respect our quarries you know it's not like we go out some of the, like i was talking to you yesterday about some of the best hawking chase stories don't end with a kill 
you know, they end with a with a a, a quarry species that we were chasing that just did some of the most spectacular things and got away, you know, and you never forget that, you know, you have a, a reverence in your heart, your respect for that guy, you know, what he did to get away from an experienced bird, you know, and birds that do incredible things, you know, in flight, you know, that's a great thing about squirrel hawking is you get to see your bird learn. You know, you get to see your bird thinking and making decisions, you know. And, uh, uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. So, uh, say a squirrel gets into a tight spot where the bird can't get at it, you know. And if you watch that bird, she'll sit there for a while and then she'll start looking around. And then she'll stop looking at something and bob her head. Then she'll start looking around again and then she'll bob her head. And she'll look around again and she'll bob her head. If you give her the time, they'll come to a place where she, what she just did, she had formulated an attack plan that involves three moves. And at the third move, she's going to be in a, in a, in an angle towards that game where she has a shot at it. And at that time, if you got to recognize when this is going on, because that plan is contingent on that squirrel being right where it's at, not moving. So you don't want to move it. When you see her doing this, and then you'll notice that when she starts to move, she'll go to the where she bobbed her head the first time. And then the next move will be to where she bobbed her head the second time. And then the next move will be to where she bobbed her head the third time. And it's from there she's going to launch that attack, you know. And when you start seeing those things and, and, and feeling the partnership that is squirrel hawking, you know, when you're when you're doing most other kinds of falconry, once you kick that thing up, you just become a spectator. You're kind of out of the loop. You just got your fingers crossed and hoping for her that she's successful at it. But in squirrel hawking, you really don't become useful other than a taxi service to get them there. You become useful when the game is flushed. That's when you become a factor. And you can take partial credit for some of the kills because if you hadn't have been there and done what you did, it wouldn't have happened, you know. So uh, that that union, that cooperation that level that you have with the birds in squirrel hawking is just so rewarding, you know. I mean, that bird will never love you. I mean, she ain't got no friends and she ain't looking to make any. The world revolves around her. You know, what she wants, what she needs. If she thought she could hold you down, she'd rip your heart out and <laughs> slurp it down and never have a twinge of, of compassion or regret because you owed it to her. It's hers mm -hmm. to start with. And that's kind of a fascinating, uh, you know, aspect of falconry. If you want to get romantic about it, is that this, this bird will, you will never be this bird's friend, but she will use you. You know, it's a kind of a, uh, what do you call it, a symbiotic? Well, it's the ultimate form of pragmatism. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she's she's taking advantage of you, yeah. and you're taking advantage of her. It's yeah, it's yeah. it's what it's what kind of relationship can I form that benefits me the most? Right. And yeah, I mean, that's like and I you say, have to never forget where you really stand. Sure. You yeah. know, in her eyes, yeah. you know, anything you do for her, well, you should have. 
Mm-hmm. It's hers anyway. <laughs> it was hers before. Yeah. You know. Well, and she'll let you know if you if you right. try and try and right. insinuate otherwise too. Right. But well, like I said, Gary, I mean, this has been another great hour of good stuff. And um, you know, like I said, I think it's another good note to end on. You know, it's it's I don't know if we can end on on much of a better sentiment than than these last couple of of last final thoughts and you know like i said i just want to say thanks again for you know kind of on short notice again willing being willing to to come out on on this sunday and um and share these last few stories here and uh yeah i mean who knows when i'll get to see you again but it sure has been a fun weekend or if, yeah. yeah you know <laughs> yeah i mean i've really i've heard george uh just talking with you and i feel like i've made a new friend yeah you know so uh Thanks for coming down here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, you're welcome. And uh, like I said, I mean, I appreciate you all and appreciate Randy for for hitting me up and, and um, you know, asking. You know, like I said, it's always an honor to get a chance to, uh, you know, get these stories out to, to the rest of the world. And I appreciate you, you know, entrusting me with that. And um, yeah, like I said, we'll, I guess, maybe have another beer and talk a little bit more and then... Man, I, I got to drive and fly back early in the morning and back to the grind, man, you know. Yeah. And I appreciate Randy, too, because he, in my uh, twilight years, he's taken good care of me. And he's going to be a force in falconry. I predict that. <laughs> well, like I said, you know, I mean, it's, uh, if, if nothing else, you know that, that he, uh, he, I don't know, for whatever reason, cares at least a little bit about you, you yeah. know? <laughs> We're pretty tight. <laughs> anyway. We're pretty tight. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I said, no, this has been, this has been great, and, and thanks again. No problem.